Mike, welcome to the show. We appreciate you being on tonight. Thanks for the invitation, Joe. Okay, let's talk about the rat of the week. Why is Bear Corporation the rat of the week? Internal documents show that after this company positively, absolutely knew that they had a medication that was infected with the AIDS virus, they took the product off the market in the U.S. and then they dumped it in France, Europe, Asia, and Latin America. The medicine's called Factor 8. It was an, inject an injection medicine that was used for hemophiliacs, mostly children. Children had been born with an incurable disease. Hold on, disease. hold on, Mike. So hold on, hold on. So you're yeah. telling me that Bear knew that this drug was infected with the AIDS virus. They yanked it from the market in America, and then they dumped it in markets overseas? They had to figure out a way, Joe, to make a profit on a product that they could not sell in America. So they made a huge profit. They, jumped, they dropped the product in Japan, Spain, and France. By the way, Joe, government officials in France that allowed that to happen actually had to go to prison for it. In America, not one corporate executive for this company has been indicted or even criminally investigated by our Justice Department. Why not? What, you're telling me that these people that dumped this AIDS-tainted blood in foreign countries yes. who killed children have not been have not been taken to task in the United it's, States. It's, it's worse than that. The U.S. government allowed it to happen. The FDA allowed this to happen, and now the government is completely looking the other way. Thousands of innocent hemophiliacs have died from the AIDS virus, and not only they're dying, their family members are dying because they're becoming infected with the disease. This company knew absolutely that they had a problem with the product. They knew that, that it was infected with AIDS. They dumped it because they wanted to turn this disaster into a profit. Mike, Mike I, I want to read to you what Bear told the New York Times about this scandal. They said, Bear behaved responsibly, ethically, and humanely. Decisions made nearly two decades ago were based on the best scientific information of the time and were consistent with the regulations in place. That sounds like a lot of legal mumbo-jumbo. Now, you say you have internal documents that show that they knew that this, this drug they were dumping was tainted with the AIDS drug? The or, or the AIDS virus? The documents show that there was no question that this company absolutely understood the risk. That, that They knew that it, was, that it was contaminated. It wasn't a possibility. They knew it was contaminated. Americans were dying from the product before it was pulled off the market. The only reason it was pulled, pulled off the market is because lawyers found the documents. And showed it to the government and finally the government said you can't sell it here but then the government allowed them to dump it in Spain France and Japan that's uh, it's amazing pretty, that, it's that's pretty, just amazing well I, I, want, I, will, I want to read to you what the New York Times said and this is an investigation that they that they they also did and they said the federal government was part of the problem while the Food and Drug Administration told the company not to ship the drugs overseas the man responsible for the drug supply quote Ask that the issue be quietly solved without alerting the Congress, the medical community, and the public. This is a cover-up, and our Congress is not doing anything. What should Americans do?
Hi, I'm Mike Papantonio, and this is America's Lawyer. Most people would be shocked to learn that a major international corporation was funded by Nazi war criminals. And as shocking as that might be to hear, that's exactly how the Bear Health Corporation was founded. After being tried for war crimes for making deadly chemicals used in Nazi concentration camps, these same war criminals got together to form their own chemical company, Bear. And that's just the beginning of the long, disgusting history of this company that we're going to be telling you about tonight. Then immigrants were arriving by the hundreds to court, only to find out that their hearing were, the dates were fake. And later in the show, women who face prosecution for home abortions finally have a number to call to get proper legal help. Don't go anywhere. America's Lawyer starts right now. During World War II, a company called IG Farben was in charge of making the deadly chemicals used in Nazi concentration camps. As a reward for their help, the IG Farben was allowed to conduct experiments on Jewish prisoners and test out their chemicals and their medications on these people. And once the war ended and the executives from IG Farben were charged with war crimes, they went and formed a new company called Bayer, a company that we're all familiar with today. But even though you know their name, it's unlikely that you know who Bear really is. I'm joined by Farron Cousins from the Trial Lawyer magazine to tell us a little bit about this story. And, and, and you know, as, of course, you know my involvement with Bear. I think every major case that Bear has faced is a case that I have brought in some form or fashion. Uh, all the way back to, uh, all the way back, of course, to the HIV contamination case, which is, I mean, horrendous. Right. The facts, you know the facts. I mean, you've, you've written about the facts. Talk about it a little bit. Well, on, on that particular case, it was, you know, Bayer Pharmaceuticals. Uh, late 70s, early 80s, they came out with this new uh, Factor 8, it was called. They were gathering platelets from healthy individuals, using it to create this Factor 8 to give to hemophiliacs, you know, because their blood wouldn't clot. So they gave them this. It was supposed to help their blood clot. But what had actually happened they weren't taking platelets and blood from healthy individuals. They were going to prison populations. They were going to areas where they knew that people had diseases, uh, hepatitis, and more importantly, HIV. Yeah, they were going where there's a lot of poverty, inner city poverty, where people were trying to make money simply by selling right. their plasma. Yeah, I handled this case, as you probably know. What, what's so startling about it, once it was very evident that the that the supply the blood supply that they were using to make factor to come up with this drug for hemophiliacs once they knew that they took it off the market in America and then they sold it all over the world in other words the same stuff that they knew had this HIV virus in it they sold in Asia sold in South America the ugly part of it of course is uh, nobody was prosecuted but you know, in that deposition, uh, I've taken so many depositions. I thought one deposition I think is relevant. Maybe we can look at it today. But it is a deposition where I'm talking about the war crimes of Bear, how they were involved with Zyklon, with, with gas at, at uh, Zyklon B gas at Auschwitz, how the company actually paid for, for, for experiments that were done by Mingla, you know, who, of, of course, uh, we, we know his history. He was, the, he was in Auschwitz and he performed a whole battery of tests on people 
of every imaginable of every imaginable kind. He injected chemicals of every kind that were experimental chemicals that they were trying to find out would it kill people, would it make them better, what he was called the angel of death. That tells you how bad the man was. But I, 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 I want to play a clip from a deposition I took of a bear executive, Leslie North. I asked her what she knew about the company's history, and here's how she reacted when she learned the truth. I really think she knew this and was trying to lie about it and cover up the fact that she didn't know about it. Let's take a look. you feel that you know enough about their history as a company, for example, uh, to, make to be proud of the leadership of that company? You proud of that? Yes. Why are you so proud? Because I believe that the individuals who have led Bear have been smart, um, authentic individuals who have demonstrated success over time. The, the leaders have been what now? Smart and what else? Can somebody read that back, please? Let me have 232. Now, do you recognize this man, Fritz Termeer, as being one of those smart, authentic leaders of Bear? You recognize? First of all, do you know, even know who Fritz Termeer is? I'd like to read this document. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like you to read it, too. Now, when you uh, read this document, did you read the part about Fritz Termeer being a Nazi war criminal? Would you underline... <laughs> Would you underline those words, Nazi war criminal, please? <clears throat> or highlight it for me. Fritz Termeer, let's read this. Fritz Termeer, July 4th, 19, uh, 1884, October 27th through 1967. They got, see that mug shot over there on the right? See that? Are you asking if I see the picture? Yeah, you see that picture? I see this picture. Does that look like a family picture or a mug shot to you? I have no idea what it might be. All right. Well, he says he was a German chemist and a Nazi war criminal. Now, when you were telling me about leaders of Bayer being authentic and smart, did you know about Fritz Tamir? I've never heard this name before. And so, did you know, ma'am, that Fritz Tamir, uh, after he was released from, uh, from prison for being a Nazi war criminal uh, there at Auschwitz, that he, uh, he became a supervisory chair board chairman of Bayer? Did you know that? Uh, would you go up on this? So, so I, I don't think she's ever seen this before. So if you would, Corey, you see, there you go. Look, Corey, right here. There you go. It says, it says, um, Fritz Tamir also worked for Bayer and later a, uh, I.G. Farber. He was involved in the planning of Monowitz concentration camp, a satellite camp of K.Z. Auschwitz. He was sentenced to seven years in prison by the Nuremberg trials in 1948. After he was released in 1951, he became a supervisory board chairman of Bear AG, and he retired in 1961. Now, the first time you've ever heard that is today? Yes. And when you were telling me that your knowledge, what I'm trying to figure out is what is your real knowledge of the history of this company, you understand? And your knowledge is that the leaders for this company have been, for Bayer, have been smart and they've been authentic. That's what you told me just a minute ago, right? Yes. So, you know, as you look at that, you, you start understanding that this corporation, 
that we now the Supreme Court says we have to treat this corporation like a person. Well, this is a psychopath. This is a murdering psychopath who now, by the way, we understand has joined forces with Monsanto, another national psychopath. What's your take? Well, what's really interesting about the bear story here, and this is what uh, uh, Ms. North in that deposition was saying she didn't know about, maybe she did, maybe she didn't. Um, it's unlikely you couldn't know about she this knew. working for the company. Yeah. But uh, Fritz Termeer, the man you mentioned in that, you know, one of the, the main founders of Bayer was also one of the worst and actually received the longest prison sentence of all of the IG Farben executives. Now, not a very long prison sentence. I think it was under 10 years, actually. And then he came and began founding a, a, a Bayer, one of the main founders of this. But the war crimes that he was particularly prosecuted for, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of deaths, they pinned on him, Mr. Fritz Termeer, right. the man who founded Bayer. Who, by the way, they to this day, every year, they put a wreath on Fritz Termeer's grave. Understand, these freaks that run Bayer have never apologized for this. Ellie, the, only, the only time that came up, Ellie Wiesel, of course, who wrote Knight, who was at Auschwitz, who lost his entire family in the death camps, Ellie Wiesel writes this book. He happens to be at a seminar, a speech of some sort, and they make this passing, almost this non-apology to Ellie Wiesel. But they've never apologized to the public. The U.S. government under Truman took all of these scientists and let them go. Yeah. In 19, by 1952, everybody that was involved in, in creating Zyklon gas, everybody that was involved in the death camps with IG Farben, all of these people were back in the norm. I thought it was interesting. I saw a quote, and it said that Hitler would not have had the success that he had without the cooperation of I.G. Farben. They actually, the, the, during, the, uh, during the, the hearings, they actually determined that, it, what, that if, you, if you wage and you weigh what everybody actually did in the Second World War, they said that I.G. Farben actually drove the motor for the Second World War. Right. None of this could have happened, is what the Nuremberg trials determined, without IG Farben, which went on to become Bayer. But they also, you know, they weren't just operating at Auschwitz. They had their own laboratory there. They made a deal with the Nazi government. We're going to give you this Zyklone B uh, chemical to, to go kill people, and in exchange, we're going to pay you a small sum of money you feed us regularly slave labor. So, 83,000. Right. So yeah. they're at Auschwitz. They built this IG Farben laboratory. Uh, there's documents that show that they're bragging our, our relationship with the SS is hugely beneficial. Eventually, all their slave labor would die. Yeah. So they would talk to them. And the documents also show this. Okay, we have to give you another payment. Please send us a fresh shipment right. of body. They, they basically killed them off through experimentation. Minglia, of course, was trying to create the Aryan race. He wanted to figure out how to, how to make everybody's eyes blue, how to make everybody blonde-haired. So he's performing these, uh, these experiments on, on, on the population, primarily Jewish population. But look, it goes well beyond factor eight. It goes well beyond, I mean, look, I handled the case against, against him for Yaz. That, tell the story. I mean, it was one that I worked up to trial. They had to settle the trial because I had found all of this information about their background, and they were bragging 
They wanted to go to the jury and brag about what a wonderful company they, they are because they sell aspirin. And so on the eve of trial, they settled, they settled the, entire AS, the entire Yaz project, but it was only because we were able to dig up the history. They were going all over the world bragging about what a wonderful company they were. Land this for me. Why, are, why is this important today? This is important today. I think the main reason, because the other corporate media won't tell this story. In fact, they downright refused to tell it when we pitched it to them with the documents going from outlet to outlet saying, here it is, right. you need to tell your people this. And that's why this is important to be able to tell this today and, and, because people are dying from and, Bear's actions. And this is the only kind of place you hear these stories. Exactly. Farron, thanks for joining me. Uh, again, these stories every week, we try to cover stories that nobody else is talking about. This is one of them. All right, welcome everyone to the Biosci War, a higher form of killing. This is a TylerBloyer.com live stream. We are coming to you live from a different zip code today, a different area code, a different time zone altogether, and a different state. But uh, we have to keep the Biosci War going. Uh, we can't take a day off uh, if we can continue to go. This also gives me the ability to test a on-the-road uh, production. Now I know the mic sounds a little bit different today, so thank you for bearing with a little bit of background noise. You might be catching the laptop fan, where last week I knew I had an audio problem that I also resolved back at the home studio. So for those that watched last week, sorry about that little buzzing in the background. Uh, but that was actually a power adapter that was like sitting on top of the XLR cable. As soon as I moved that off of there, the power supply from one of the monitors, uh, that buzzing went away. So that's good. Today we're on a different mic altogether, and uh, there's a fan close behind it on the laptop here that you'll probably hear a little buzzing if you turn all the way up. Uh, also, there could be some background noise from the children in the home. They're here with me, and uh, that's enough said there. So you saw some clips there. We're learning about IG Farben. We're learning about uh, Bayer Monsanto. Uh, let's see here, what's going on with the audio? For some reason, I'm not getting audio here. Your voice is a bit low, somebody said. Is the audio still coming in? Why am I not? Just, I know that's a pain in the ass, but let me make sure that I'm getting audio here. For some reason, on my monitor. Oh, that's because that's a different monitor. Okay, it's because I'm confused. All right, thanks everyone for dealing with me uh, troubleshooting here. One man studio, one man operation. <laughs> different location. I can definitely hear my children screaming in the background, so that's a good sign. <laughs> Let's see if somebody could come shut the door all the way. That would help me out. If somebody's listening and they want to come shut the door to the room that I'm in, that would really help out. But yeah, we're learning about uh, IG Farben, the chemical company there uh, from Germany during the Nazi uh, era. And we'll go to this screen here. And that's going to give us a little bit of a history on IG Farben from the Wikipedia. And... Uh, 
IG Farben, which is Intersengemingschaft Farbendistri AG, Germany, for Dye Industry Syndicate Corporation, commonly known as IG Farben, the German IG color. So it was like a chemical company. So it was a German chemical and pharmaceutical conglomerate formed in 1925 from a merger of six chemical companies, BASF, Bayer, Hocht, Agfa, Chemist, Fabrik, Germaschka, Elktron, and Chemische Fabrik, Vorm, Wheeler, Termier. It was sized by the Allies after World War II and divided back into its constituent, uh, sorry, <laughs> constituent companies. It is a heyday, IG Farben was the large, at its heyday, IG Farben was the largest company in Europe and the largest chemical and pharmaceutical company in the world. IG Farben scientists made fundamental contributions to all areas of chemistry and pharmaceutical industry. Otto Bayer discovered the polo, uh, poly addition for the synthesis of polyurethane in 1937. The three company scientists became Nobel laureates, Carl Bosch and Friedrich Berges in 1931 for their contributions to the invention and development of chemical high-pressure methods, and Gerhard Dalmach in 1939 quote for the discovery of the antibacterial effects or antibacterial effects of prontacil unquote the company had ties in 1920 to the liberal german people's party and was accused by the nazis of being an quote international capitalist jewish company unquote a decade later it was a nazi party donor and after the nazi takeover in germany in 1933 a major government contractor providing significant material to the German war effort, that being IG Farben. Uh, throughout that decade, it purged itself of its Jewish employees. The remainder left in 1938, uh, described as, quote, the most notorious German industrial concern during the Third Reich, unquote. In 1940, the company relied on slave labor from concentration camps, in, uh, including 30,000 from Auschwitz, and was involved in medical experiments on inmates at both Auschwitz and the Malthusian concentration camp. One of its subsidiaries supplied the poison gas, Cyclone B, that killed over one million people in gas chambers during the Holocaust. The Allies seized the company at the end of the war in 1945, and the U.S. authorities put its directors on trial, held from 1947 to 1948. As one of the subsequent Nuremberg trials, the, RG, the IG Farben trial saw 23 IG Farben directors tried for war crimes and 13 convicted. By 1951, all had been released by the American High Commissioner for Germany, John J. McCloy. What remained of IG Farben in the West was split in 1951 into six constituent companies, then again, oh, sorry, then again into three, BASF, Bayer, and Hocht. These companies continued to operate as an informal cartel and played a major role in the West German Weisternwunder. Following several later mergers, the main successor, uh, successor companies are AGFA, or AGFA, BASF, 
Bayer, and Sonafi. In 2004, the University of Frankfurt housed the formal IG Farben head office, set up a permanent exhibition on campus, the Norbert Wyman Memorial for the Slave Labor and Those Killed by Cyclone B. Uh, so that's just reading a little bit of history mm -hmm. there from the Wikipedia. Clearly, uh, that's not the end-all be-all of IG Farben, and there's quite a bit more there to go into. But we're going to leave that one in the show notes so you can go read into it more, as well as those two opening clips, uh, just so you guys can have those in the links. And then uh, Bayer will also leave the wiki in there, and there's some other links. But let's just get everybody, before we get too far into that, introduced into the BioSci War today. Oops, smacking my book cam there. Um, <clears throat> Those uh, clips that you saw opening up, again, talking about IG Farben, and then we read about its subsidiaries, and uh, of course Bayer being one of those, and the incident of some of their products being uh, infected or known to be cause uh, AIDS, and them understanding and knowing that, and then still uh, dumping that product in countries all around the world, and no one as far as uh, in the U.S. being held accountable, even though they knew about what they were doing. And that's something that you can look into and that we'll get more into here as we learn more about IG Farben and the Bayer Connection and Monsanto and things like that. Uh, but today, just getting started, this is part 11 of the BioSci War. And uh, again, a higher form of killing. That's one of the books that we'll be reading from later today. And uh, it might be not as long of an episode today. We have obviously I'm in a different location so I've got some things going on um, but again we're just keeping in stride with the BioSci war and I had some things that I wanted to update on today and read into the record and some of the research from last week message in the anthrax we're gonna highlight some things today that will link into that and more of the porting down and history of biological weapons and the labs in the various countries we'll get more history on that today as well and uh, again, I'm in a different location, as you can see. The audio is going to sound a little bit different because I'm on a different mic. And last week, some of those mic issues that I had are all cleared up. So uh, we'll get right into it today. So back to the articles here on Bayer. We're going to do the same thing. Just read a little bit about Bayer from the Info Galactic artic uh, article. Uh, this will be in the show notes. So Bayer AG is a German multinational chemical and pharmaceutical company founded in Barmen, today part of Wuppertal, Germany, in 1863. It is headquartered in Levikensun, northern Rhine-Westphalia, Germany, where its illuminated sign is a landmark. Bayer's primary area of business include human and veterinarian pharmaceuticals, consumer healthcare product healthcare products agricultural chemical and biotechnology products and high value polymers the company is a component of the euro stocks 50 stock market index bayer lost its us business after world war 1 and world war 2 was part of ig farben and participated in nazi war crimes IG Farben was broken up after World War II and Bayer became independent again and in 1978 it brought back 
its name in the U.S. Bayer's first and best known product was aspirin. There is a dispute about what scientists at Bayer made the most important contributions to it. Arthur Eichengrun and or Felix Hoffman, Bayer trademarked, quote, heroin, unquote, and marketed it as cough suppressant and non-addictive substances for morphine from 19, uh, 1898 to 1910. Bayer also introduced phenobarbital, uh, I don't know if I'm saying that right, prontisil, <laughs> and first widely used antibiotic and the, uh, sorry, the first widely used antibiotic and the subject of the 1939 Nobel Prize in Medicine. The antibiotic C Cipro, or Ciprofloxin, and Yaz, Dosprinbrinon, <laughs> birth control pills. In 2014, Bayer bought Merck's consumer business with brands such as Claritin, Copperton and Dr. Scholl's. It's Bayer's crop science business develops genetically modified crops and pesticides. Its material science division makes polymers and polythuranes and polycarbonate. So interesting that they, you know, are part of Merck and another German-American company that we learned about recently in the BioSci War, as well as uh, all these other companies that you're probably familiar with and uh, also participating in genetically modified crops and of course we know uh, the Bayer Monsanto uh, have merged and are, are also working together on these technologies so it's knowing about a little bit of the history is also uh, interesting here with Bayer and so we can read more about the history of Bayer and their connections in with IG Farben. Let's just see how much. So sir, it says here, during World War II, IG Farben used slave labor in factories attached to s large slave labor camps, notably IG Auschwitz, and the subcamps of the Malthusian Gaussian concentration camps. IG Farben engaged in human experimentation on Auschwitz prisoners, often with fatal results. Uh, of course, yeah, we were just reading about IG, and not much else mention of IG directly in that wiki on Bayer, and that's pretty interesting, being that they, uh, you know, were part of it. Okay, yeah, it's, we did get them in the beginning. Maybe it's just the way that I searched IG. Okay, yeah, there's quite a bit of mention there. So that was just a mistake in the way that I was searching that. So IG Farben, of course, Bayer became part of IG Farben, a German chemical company conglomerate in 1925. In 1930, IG Farben scientists Guyhard Dalmach and Fritz Meitscher and Joseph Klarer discovered Prontacil, the first commercially available antibacterial drug. The discovery and development of this first sulfamide drug opened an era in medicine. Damacht received the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his work in 1939. During World War II, IG Farben used slave labor. Of course, we were just reading about that. Okay, great. So, moving on, uh, the contaminated hemophilia products, uh, the blood products that we were just uh, hearing about in that documentary, we probably shouldn't just, you know, take it for the word in that RT little mini documentary or that other 
piece that was an older blurry you know if that's the first time we're hearing about it uh, we should read a little bit more about that as well so here you'll be able to find this in the show notes this is about the contaminated hemophilia blood products uh, contaminated hemophilia blood products were a serious public health problem in the late 1970s up to 1985. These products caused large numbers of hemophiliacs to become infected with HIV and hepatitis C. The companies involved included Alpha Therapeutics Corporations, Institute, Institute Merics, they became the Rhone Pollock Rohrer Inc., and is now part of Sanofi and Bayer Corporation and its Cutter Biological Division. Baxter International, and its Highland Pharmaceutical Division. Estimates range from 6,000 to 10,000 hemophiliacs in the United States uh, becoming infected with HIV. Factor 8 is the protein that helps the clotting of blood with hemophiliacs. Due to the generic nature of their condition, are unable to produce themselves. By injecting themselves with it, hemophiliacs can stop bleeding or prevent bleeding from starting. Some use of it, uh, some use it as often as three times a week. The initial concerns in 1981, concerns were growing over an unidentified infectious disease associated with immune system collapse that would later become known as AIDS. In the U.S., it was found mostly in homosexual men and intravenous drug users, while in France, doctors were finding it in more diverse groups of patients. On July 16, 1982, the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention reported that three hemophiliacs had acquired the disease. Epidemiologists started to believe that the disease was being spread through blood products. The grave implications for hemophiliacs who had routinely injected themselves with concentrates made from large pools of donated plasma, most of, most of which collected by commercial plasmapheresis prior to routine HIV mm -hmm. testing, often in cities that had large numbers of homosexuals and intravenous drug users and in some U.S. prisons and underdeveloped countries during the four or five years in the late 1970s through the 1980s before AIDS was even heard of. In January 1983, the manager of plasma procurement for Bayer Cutter's biological division acknowledged in a letter that, quote, there is a strong evidence to suggest that AIDS is passed on to other people through plasma products. In March of 1983, the CDC warned that blood products, quote, appeared responsible for AIDS among hemophilia patients, unquote. By May of 1983, a cutter rival began making a heat-treated concentrate, and France decided to halt all clotting concentrate imports. Cutter feared losing customers, so according to an internal member, Cutter, quote, wanted to give the impression that they were continuously improving our products without telling them uh, they, without telling them soon to have a heat-treated, unquote, concentrate. The process rendered the virus, quote, undetectable, unquote, in the product according to a government study. In June of 1983, a Kutar or Cutter, however you say that, letter to distributors in France and 20 other countries said that, quote, AIDS has become the center of irrational response in many countries, unquote, and that, quote, this is of particular concern to us because of unsubstantiated speculations that this syndrome may be transmitted by certain blood products, unquote. France continued using old-style untreated concentrate through August of 1983. 
So they understood that their products were causing and they were casting a little doubt and saying, oh, you know, but uh, apparently they had known that it was causing AIDS. So on February 29th of 1984, Cutter became the last of the four major blood product companies to get U.S. approval to sell heated concentrate. Even after Cutter began selling the new products for several months until 1984, the company continued making the old medicine. One reason was that the company had several fixed price contracts and believed that the old product could be cheaper to produce. So Bayer officials responding on behalf of Cutter issued a statement stating that Cutter continued to sell old medicines, quote, because some of the customers doubted the new drug's effectiveness, unquote, and because some countries were slow to approve its sale. The company also said that the shortage of plasma used to make the medicine had kept Cutter from manufacturing more of the new product. Unquote. Bayer officials also claimed that an overall plasma shortage in 1985 kept Cutter from making, so they're basically, you know, making up excuses for why they couldn't stop making the product that was known to cause AIDS. And uh, then, you know, according to them, uh, profit motives and things like that, and, uh, you know, regulatory problems, you know, is, an, is a good enough reason here. So just skipping down a little bit. Um, Uh, the, the United States Food and Drug Administration, here in this Wikipedia article on contaminated hemophilia blood products, the FDA helped to keep the news out of the public eye. In May 1985, the FDA regulators of blood products, Mary M. Meyer Jr., believing the companies had broken a voluntary agreement to withdraw the old medicine from the market, called together officials of the company and ordered them to comply. Cutter's notes from the meeting indicated that Myers asked that the issue be, quote, quietly solved without alerting the Congress, the medical community, and the public, unquote. Well, another company noted that the FDA wanted the matter solved quickly and quietly. At the same time, Cutter officials wrote that, quote, it appeared there are no longer any markets in the Far East where we can expect to sell substantial quantities of non-heat-treated medicine, unquote and stopped shipping unheated concentrate in July of 1985. According to the New York Times, doctors and patients contacted overseas said they had not noted the contents of the cutter documents. The effects are close to impossible to calculate since many records are unavailable and because it was, well, until an AIDS test was developed, one cannot know when foreign hemophiliacs were affected with HIV before cutter began selling its safer medicine or afterward. The New York Times found these largely unnoticed documents, quote, internal memorandums, minutes of the mar company's marketing meetings, and to Lexus to foreign distributors, unquote, as part of the production in connection with the American hemophiliacs lawsuit described below. Sidney M. Wolf, director of Public Citizens Health Research Group, which has been investigating the industry's practice for three decades, called them quote, the most incriminating internal pharmaceutical industry documents I've ever seen, unquote. On August 23, 2000, 2003, MSNBC Scarborough County and Bayer on their, quote, Rat of the Week segment, unquote, speaking with Mike Pompontinio, that's the one we watched in the beginning, by the way, a legal advisor to the show, they discussed the 2003 The New York Times article referenced above, saying, that the product known by Bayer to bear a risk of contamination was, quote, dropped in Japan, Spain, and France, 
As of 2003, the United States Justice Department had not yet investigated any corporate executives. And then you can go on to read about the various countries and the way that the, the trials were carried out uh, there. Uh, we can skip ahead to another article on from CBS News. Uh, Bayer sold HIV, risky meds, chemical and drug maker Bayer AG said Thursday it acted, quote, responsibly and ethically and humanely during, the, unquote, during the 1980s in selling blood clotting products that stopped potentially fatal bleeding and hemophiliacs, but was linked to a risk of HIV infection. The company's statement was in response to a New York Times report that said it sold millions of dollars worth of older versions of medication in Latin America and Asia while marketing a newer, safer product in the United States and Europe. Bayer Division Cutter Biology Biological continued selling old stocks of the medicine for more than a year after it introduced a version in 1984 that was heat treated to kill HIV, according to the documents obtained by the Times. So the medicine called Factor 8 Concentrate can stop and prevent potentially fatal bleeding in people with hemophilia, a genetic condition that prevents blood from clotting normally. Early in the AIDS epidemic, the medicine was made using plasma from 10,000 or more donors, and there was not yet a screening test for HIV and the virus that causes AIDS, so even a number, a small number of HIV-positive donors could taint a large pool of plasma recipients. So that article continues on, but just more of the evidence that they knowingly sold products that would infect hemophiliacs with AIDS and went ahead and did it anyway. Um, so that's just an interesting connection to Bayer, um, a, a company that was then uh, merged into IG Farben and then later merged, uh, like demerged back into Bayer. And again, and then it's a company that's still in existence now making products for people. So just an interesting, you know, thing to think about as you consider uh, some of the more recent technologies with Gene Drive and gene editing and uh, race-specific bioweapons and things that we've also learned about here in the BioSci War, uh, what would a company do with certain technologies if they had you know, certain monopolies on medications that could affect certain races or certain gene pools or people with certain pr uh, medical conditions? Uh, just you know, a little bit of insinuation on you know, the possible connections between these modern companies like Merck and Bayer having a large, you know, control over certain aspects of certain markets, you know, w would there still be any link to any eugenics past? Would there be any links to any eugenics philosophy or Nazi philosophy that would be interesting to note there uh, with uh, any kind of participation that they could be having in the current world? Or what, what would they do if they had a certain technology with the power and the worldwide uh, domination in certain areas that they have now. But reading on, uh, just one more article. Bayer's division knowingly sold HIV-infected protein. A division of German pharmaceuticals company Bayer knowingly sold blood, sold blood clotting agents infected with HIV to Asia and Latin America months after withdrawing from their Europe and U.S. and American newspaper claimed yesterday. Cutter Biological continued to dump stocks of the Factor 8 blood clotting agent for hemophiliacs on poor countries for nearly a year after introducing a safer alternative, uh, the report in the New York Times said. So that goes on another article that's from The Guardian. So just giving some surrounding information there. And we'll go on in the bio war and we're going to talk a lot more about IG Farben 
the uh, German chemical company. As we learned there, they were a, a dye manufacturing company. We're going to learn more about that today, a little in the book uh, that we're going about to read here. And uh, I have uh, some books in the mail that are going to help uh, provide more context, and we'll be able to read those into the record. And I'm sure there's going to be more surrounding information with Bayer and these uh, aids and connections in with uh, possibly uh, Operation Paperclip and the study of SV40 and other monkey viruses and viruses grown in kidneys from monkeys that potentially infected or affected or contaminated the polio vaccine causing people to have cancer causing viruses and SV40 uh, among other viruses uh, which was knowing, known to contaminate the polio vaccine for some time. But for now, we're going to move into a book that we talked about last week, and uh, we're gonna, and it's actually the name of today's episode, which is a higher form of killing: a secret history of chemical and biological warfare. And this book is by Robert Harris and Jeremy Paxman, uh, with a new final chapter, and uh, you can find that on Amazon. But of course, there's something interesting that we've noted here from uh, Mr. Dave Emery on his uh, archived site, spitfirelist.com, um, from the For the Record episode 1012 from June 6th of 2018. Uh, he talked about an excerpt from the book um, that was actually withdrawn from the later printing in 2002. So I'm just going to read this here from Dave's site. It says, uh, Central to our analysis is a look at an excerpt from the testimony before the House Appropriations Subcommittee that was drawing up the defense budget for the following year, the hearing in 1969. The testimony discusses the possibility of using genetic engineering to produce a disease that would be, quote, refractory, unquote, to the immune system. This is virtually the clinical definition of AIDS. It is worth noting that the project was funded and such, uh, just such a disease AIDS appeared in just the time frame poised. It is also worth noting that in the 2002 edition of A Higher Form of Killing, this passage was omitted. So we're going to go ahead and read that passage now before we get into the book. As long ago as 1962, 40 scientists were employed at the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Laboratories on full-time genetic research. Many others, it was said, quote, appreciate the implications of genetics for their own work, unquote. The implications were made more specific that genetic engineering could solve one of the major disadvantages of biological warfare, that it is limited to diseases which occur naturally somewhere in the world, quote, within the next five to ten years, it would probably uh, it would be possible to make it, sorry, let me read, start that over again. Within the next five to ten years, it would probably be possible to make a new infected microorganism which could differ in certain important respects from any known disease-causing organisms. Most important of these is that it might be refractory to the immunological and therapeutic processes upon which we depend to maintain our relative freedom from infectious disease. Italics are Mr. Emery's. <laughs> the possibility that such a, quote, super germ may have been successfully produced in a laboratory somewhere in the world 
in the year since that assessment was made is one which should not be too readily cast aside. So let me just read that last part. The possibility that such a super germ may have been successfully produced in a laboratory somewhere in the world in the years since that assessment was made is one which should not be too readily cast aside. Um, so you can read on in that article uh, from David Emery's site. We'll just read a little bit more. Purebred Northern Europeans possess a hereditary immunity to infection by HIV. A gene, the CCR5 Delta 32, that conferred immunity to Black Death long believed to have been bubonic plague. Bubonic plague was a major focal point of Third Reich biological weapons research stemming from SS Chief Heinrich Hindler's interest in that disease. Disguised as a cancer research program, Nazi Germany's plague researcher, or research was presided over by Kurt Blom, the Deputy Surgeon General of the Third Reich. Blom went to work for the U.S. under Project Paperclip, also known as Operation Paperclip. We wonder if Nazi research into bubonic plague and the emergence of the immune-destroying disease to which only purebred Northern European, quote, Aryans, unquote, were immune, might have been the outgrowth of Nazi-inspired U.S. biological weapons research stemming from paperclip. Another development in that context is noteworthy. When U.S. officials, quote, gave up, unquote, biological warfare research, Fort Detrick, the military's top biological weapons research facility, was officially turned over to the National Cancer Institute's Viral Cancer Research Project, featuring veterans of the U.S. Biological Warfare Research Program, the NCI's VCP, was implemented by Litton Bionetics, the biotechnology subsidiary of Litton Industries, a major defense contractor. The National Cancer Institute's Viral Cancer Research Project was the epicenter of U.S. research into AIDS. We strongly suspect that this was a recapitulation of the Third Reich's use of, quote, cancer research. And then he says, uh, Dave here, in both, in both For the Record 912 and AFA 39, they highlighted Bayer's projected purchase of Monsanto, and uh, they engaged in the line of inquiry that is speculative in nature, evolving the possibilities that companies descended from the IG Farben chemical cartel may absorb Monsanto, the firm noted for its development of genetically modified organisms. Of course, we know since then that they did absorb uh, Monsanto. Specifically, Bayer and BASF figured into the reported maneuvering for Monsanto. The deal has passed American antitrust regulators, with BASF purchasing some $9 billion in former Bayer assets to permit the deal to go forward. Against the background of the remarkable Borman Capital Network's effective control of the firm's... Now, we'll learn more in the BioSci War about the Borman Capital Network. Uh, firms that descends from the IG Farben. We ruminate about the possibilities of genetic engineering binary pathogens being included in the food supply available to much of the world's population. Um, of course, we learned about jab holdings uh, in Grand Theft World episode 21 or 22, I can't recall, but we learned about Krispy Kreme being consumed uh, by jab holdings, and the interesting thing about that is that they're for, if you get the jab, Krispy Kreme will give you a free donut for every day of the year. 
So why would Krispy Kreme be so interested in promoting uh, jab holding and uh, uh, other agendas having to do with taking the jab? Um, and here it says, they are owned by a secretive group of German billionaires mostly related to each other. This group owns outright or a majority or a rather shocking number of major American brands, including Pete's Coffee, Panera Bread, Jimmy Shoe Shoes, Dogway Ebert Coffee, and Krispy Kreme Donuts. They appear to be making a major move to dominate the U.S. as perhaps a global coffee industry. Okay, so I'm going to leave that there. Uh, episode, for the record, Food for Thought 1012. And we're going to move on into the reading today of A Higher Form of Killing. And this is a Robert Harris and Jeremy Paxson book. And we'll start here. Uh, this book was a Random House 2002 paperback edition and originally copyright 1982-1983 by Robert Harris and Jeremy Paxson. All rights reserved, blah, blah, blah. And uh, this book, of course, had that omitted passage that we just learned about uh, from the beginning from the beginning there from Mr. Emery's article. So we read about the omitted passage. And then we also read this quote last week. Uh, let's just make sure the sound's coming in. Okay, yeah, yeah. And the quote is, In a future war, will the military be able to ignore poison gas? It is a higher form of killing. And that was Professor Fritz Haber, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize for Chemistry and inventor of chemical warfare, 1923, and we read that um, into the record last week in the show as well uh, about the higher form of killing. And what they're saying there is, you know, that warfare used to be so brutal that th these ideas of like dropping chlorine gas uh, or chlorine bombs or anthrax bombs or mustard gas is not as um, brutal or it's not as barbaristic or it's not as evil or whatever in as a like a, just an old school way of like man just killing each other out in the field but if you read this book and or learn more about mustard gas and things like that um mustard gas really just not proving the point that it's a higher form of killing i mean that is just brutal uh, the way that that mustard gas kills people in and at first they don't even realize that they're like have been attacked and they can start uh, infecting others or you know causing others to have a mustard gas problem uh, by rubbing it on them and some of the things in this book were really definitely hard to get through um, but back to the reading we're gonna read the introduction and again the higher form of killing is what we're reading here so a Higher Form of Killing was the first book either of us wrote. It was published in 1982, fared reasonably well, and was translated into German and duly passed into honorable obscurity about a decade ago. We never expected to return to the subject, but chemical and biological weapons have assumed a horrible importance again. Indeed, they are probably more of a threat to the security of the world now than they were 20 years ago when America's decision to develop a new generation of quote binary unquote chemical weapons first prompted our interest in their history. Astonishingly, it seemed likely that more people were killed by poison gas in 1980 than any decade since the First World War, 
as many as 20,000 in the Iran-Iraq war alone, a type of weapon which was most military experts thought to be obsolete, and which three generations of arms negotiators have sought to outlaw, has made a comeback with a vengeance. Straighten that out a little there. <coughs> Chemical and biological weapons, CBW, frequently and inaccurately described as the poor man's atomic bomb, are instruments of mass destruction that were once within the reach of only the world's most sophisticated nations. But the prolifer pro proliferation of technology has now made them readily available to such secondary powers as Iraq, Iran, Syria, Libya, and North Korea. Indeed, Japanese terrorists have managed to manufacture one of the most deadly of all the nerve agents, sarin, in their own private facility. After the attacks on America in September 11th of 2001, President George W. Bush declared that the world was, quote, at war with terrorism, unquote. It is regrettably fairly likely that at some point in the course of this, quote, war, unquote, the terrorists will try to strike with at least one of the weapons described in this book. Five people have already died from weapons-grade anthrax poisonings in the United States. It is not at the time of the writing clear that anthrax came from or who used it, but there were worrying large quantities of weaponized anthrax in existence. The collapse of the Soviet Union, for example, has finally revealed the full extent of the Kremlin's CBW arsenal. It must be regarded as a serious possibility that some of the material has found its way into new hands. Our original purpose in writing the book was to put together uh, the first general history of a gas of uh, sorry of gas and germ warfare. It begins in the Western Front of 1915 when the Germans unleashed an attack using vaporized chlorine, its charts and growing escalation of gas warfare in that conflict as each side sought to outpoison the other with new and more deadly weapons phosphine mustard gas cyanide it describes how the world's powers then sought to outlaw chemical weapons and how nazi scientists developed a whole new generation of poison gas in the 1930s the so-called nerve agents uh, sorry the so-called nerve agents it recounts the beginning of the first major biological weapons program in Britain, the Second World War, and tells how Russia and America eventually came to stockpile massive amounts of the most deadly toxins on the planet. We described it as a, quote, secret history, unquote, because these, because these weapons have generally been tested and manufactured clandestinely for obvious reasons. All methods of killing are distasteful, but there are some things particularly repulsive and shameful about the use of chemical and germ weapons. They are, first and foremost, indiscriminate weapons, quote, dirty, unquote, as one young soldier we met during our research put it. They rely on their effectiveness on taking their victims unawares. By and large, they are invisible and do damage from within the body. You may not see the bomb or bullet that kills you, but the external threat is somehow, quote, cleaner, unquote, than the mal malignant tumor or paralysis or suffocation inflicted by these unseen weapons. Poison gas and germ weapons turn civilization on its head. 
Diseases are not fought, but carefully cultivated. Doctors use their knowledge of their functions of the human body to devise even more effective means of halting these functions. Agriculturalists deliberately induced fungi and developed crop destroyers. The chlorine and poison of our grandfathers at Ypres came from the synthetic dye industry and was available thanks to grandmother's desire for brightly colored dresses. Modern nerve gases were originally designed to help mankind by killing beetles and lice. Now, in the hands of the military, they are insecticides for people. Indeed, if you want to imagine the effects of nerve gas on the human being, the frantic death of a fly sprayed by an ordinary, ordinary domestic insecticide gives the approximate picture. Chemical and biological warfare, as one writer has put it, is, quote, public health in reverse, unquote. Ever since the first gas attack during the First World War, man has attempted to come up with terms with impulse that lead him to the development of these weapons. The provisions of the Biological Warfare Convention of 1972, and most recently the Chemical Warca Warfare Conventions of 1997, have done much to outlaw gas and germ warfare, yet the specter somehow has never entirely gone away. Why this should be is one of the most recent themes in this book. Alright, so yeah, again, reading from the higher form of killing, just reading the introduction here, and uh, we learned a little bit about uh, the history of biological warfare, as well as um, the use of chemical weapons in World War One and World War Two. And now we're just going to skip ahead to page 10 here in the book, uh, after page, after chapter 1, we're going, I think, this is still a part of chapter one and uh, from a higher form of killing in 1915 the task facing him was to tax even his in uh, start starting again sorry about that in 1915 the task facing him was to tax even his ingenuity to the utmost the British High Command wanted gas ready to employ in their autumn defense Fulkes had five months to devise a gas weapon, get it into production, recruit and train men to use it, and work out how to best employ it. Fortunately for the British, these attempts would not be hampered by further German gas attacks. After the attacks on May 24th, the wind began to blow from the west and the Germans transferred their gas corps to the eastern front. Equip, uh, sorry where it was employed with devastating results against the ill-equipped Russian army. Apart from two attacks against the French in October, no more gas was discharged against the Allies in France until December. The major problem confronting Fulkes was one that he, as a soldier, could do least about, the weakness of the British chemical industry. There was nothing in the United Kingdom, or even in the rest of the world, that could remotely match the productive capacity of Germans' eight chemical com combines huddled together in a massive concentration in the Ruhr, known as the Intersimon Geheimenschaft, the IG. To fight a war with poison gas requires highly efficient mass production, a demand which the IG, the capitalized at an estimate of 400 million, uh, then capitalized at an estimate of 400 million, was ideally suited to meet. Most First World War 
gases could be manufactured in bulk using methods and machinery normally employed in making dye stuffs. By the start of the war, Germany had virtually world monopoly in the production of dyes. Britain, on the other hand, could produce only a tenth of what she needed. The imbalance was to be a serious handicap to the Allied chemical war effort, which right up to the end of the war lagged behind the efficiency of their enemies. Indeed, it was an unchallengeable superiority in chemical production, together with the fact that the British naval blockade was starving them of supplies of nitrates for making high explosives that first led the German high command to contemplate using gas. They had introduced a form of tear gas called the T-Stoff after its inventor, Dr. Tappan. On the Russian front of January 1915, T-Stoff, one of the... Pre uh, the precursors of modern riot gas, was considered just within the scope of weapons permitted by the Hague Convention. The Allies had similar weapons. In March, the French, on the initiative of a conscripted policeman, introduced tear gas cartridges and grenades. The British were developing a stink bomb for clearing out dugouts same SK after South, uh, named SK after South Kensington, where it was invented. In the stress of war, it seemed but short step from the use of gases that incapacitated men by temporarily blinding or choking them to introducing of lethal agents. The introduction of chemical warfare was in fact actively canvassed by the IG cartel from the outset of the war, most notably by its head, Karl Duisberg, a, an, quote, imperious Prussian who would not tolerate dissent in either his personal or his business life, unquote. A man who specifically spoke uh, and believed in the, quote, Führer principle, unquote. Long before Hitler was ever heard of, Duisberg belonged to the scientific and industrial elite, whose skill and inscrupulousness was to enable Germans to fight the war for ten out of the next forty years. The chemical industry was the foundation of Germans' war machine. Without Duisberg's factories discovered and mass production of synthetic nitrates, the Kaiser would have been forced to sue for peace in 1915. Now the initiation of poison gas warfare promised both to strengthen, strengthen further the IG's positions in Germany and to revive the moribund dye industry, which had been virtually standstill since the start of the war. Duisberg urged the employment of the chemical warfare at a special conference in the German High Command in the autumn of 1914, and he personally investigated the toxicity of the various war gases. Later, he arranged for the offices at his own company, Bayer, to be decorated with the giant frieze depicted, uh, depicting all the various aspects of the factory's war work. One panel showed gas being made, another shells being filled a third gas mask being assembled. At the end of the war, he produced, he proudly displayed the work of art to a bemused Allied officer. So just reading that part on Bayer again, as it is interesting to the connections that we brought up earlier uh, in the episode, we'll just read that one more time. So Duisberg urged the employment of chemical warfare at a special conference of the German High Command in the autumn of 1914, and he personally investigated the toxicity of various war gases. Later, he arranged for the offices of his own company, Bayer, to be decorated with giant 
frieze depicting all over the various aspects of his workers' war work, of his factory's war work. So he asked for some a bunch of panels in his factory to show, you know, what they were working on. He was very proud to be making uh, weapons for killing people uh, from this well-known company now known as Bayer. Um, so let's see. I wanted to continue on uh, the reading here. And was uh, let's just start back on this page. To Duesberg, enthusiasm, enthusiasm, sorry, to Duesberg, enthusiasm and the productive power of the IG was added to the genius of the Germans' leading industrial scientists. The man today, generally credited, credited as the father of chemical warfare, was the head of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin, Fritz Haber. Forty years old, a brilliant chemist, a future Nobel Prize winner, and a fervent patriot, Haber energetically set about the task to finding the world's first practical lethal chemical weapon. Work began in autumn of 1914. Quote, we could hear, unquote, stated the witness at the end of the war, quote, the tests that Professor Haber was carrying out at the back of the Institute with the military authorities, who in their steel gray cars came to Haber's Institute every morning. The work was pushed day and night, and many times I saw activities in the building at even 11 o'clock in the evening. It was commonly no knowledge that Haber was pushing these men as hard as he could. In the early experiments, laboratories were shown up killing Haber's assistant. Uh, sorry. Laboratory was blown up killing Haber's assistant, Professor Satcher. And uh, again, for those just catching us here today, we're reading from the book The Higher Form of Killing. This is the episode from the Biosci War called The Higher Form of Killing. By January, Haber had a weapon ready to show the army. Instead of filling the chemicals into shells, he proposed to discharge it from cylinders. The chemicals he chose with was chlorine, a powerful asphyxiating gas that could easily be stored in cylinders in liquid form on contact with the air it evaporated into low hanging cloud which would favor which with with a favor with a favorable wind could be carried into the heart of the enemy's position. In addition there were stocks of chlorine to hand. Even before the war, IG was producing forty tons per day. British production was less than a tenth of this. The stock of the new weapons, the scale upon which the attack could be mounted, and the ability of the gas to penetrate even the strongest fortifications gave the Germans great hope that this chemical warfare might be the deadlock to the West. Haber himself went to the Ypres to supervise the attack. Yet despite the fact, despite the fact that between April 22nd and May 24th, 500 tons of chlorine were discharged from over 20,000 cylinders of Allied line the Allied line held. Gas could not win the war alone. It had to be backed by a powerful offensive, which at Ypres the Germans failed to mount. Haber was bitterly disappointed. The military commanders, he wrote, quote, admitted afterward that if they had followed the advice and made large-scale attacks instead of the experiment at uh, Ypres, the Germans would have won, unquote. Haber returned to Berlin, where his wife Clara pleaded with him to give up the work and stay at home. Haber refused. In May, 
He left for the Eastern Front, where the three devastating attacks 40 miles west of Warsaw and Russia lost around 25,000 men and killed and wounded. Uh, 25,000 men killed and wounded. Throughout the war, the poorly protected Russians suffered the worst of all the countries engaged in chemical war. By the end of the war, they were said to have suffered almost half a million casualties. In just one of the early attacks, the Siberian regiment was virtually eliminated. It began with 39 officers and 4,310 men. It ended with 4 officers and 400 men. In the West, however, it was the Germans who were about to suffer. Duisburg had made the fatal miscalculation about the Allies and the ability to respond with chemical weapons. Far from breaking the stalemate as he and Haber had hoped, gas was to become a major part of it. A pattern was established that was to persist to the end of the war. The Germans would initiate the use of new gas to try to break through. It would fail, be copied by the Allies, and the cycle would repeat itself. In the summer of 1915, as work began in the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in the next war, war gas, phosphine, Fulkes struggled to find the men who and materials for the Allies. First gas attack using chlorine. Haber himself was left to mourn the personal cost of his work on chemical warfare. On the night he left on the eastern front, Claire, on the eastern front, Clara Haber committed suicide. And so, by the combination of industrial might, military expediency, and the skill of a handful of patriotic scientists, the world drifted into chemical warfare. Britain's poison gas offensive was waged by an elite section of the army, raised by Folkes and known as the Special Companies, later the Special Brigade. Everyone was given extra pay, and all held rank at at least equivalent to corporal. Most of them were new recruits, science graduates, and or, or sorry, or industrial chemists. After the war, many of them became key figures in Britain's fledgling imperial chemical industries. In 1915, they carried the revolvers instead of rifles and were largely excused from the discipline of the pay grade ground. They learned and learned instead to handle the quote ah ahos unquote, the great 190-pound cylinders of chlorine that required two men to carry them and were to be the basis of Britain's first chemical attack. By September 25th, 5,500 of these cylinders containing 150 tons of gas had been manhandled into poison at Luce in Belgium, ready for the British offensive. They had been shipped across the channel in the greatest secrecy, each of them each in an unmarked wooden box, carried at the cost of 12 shillings each. A patrol of airplanes ensured that the special companies were not observed as they prepared the attack. The need for a surprise was of paramount. In all plans for the attack distributed to the company's commanders, gas was referred to simply as the accessory. The severe penalties were imposed on anyone who accidentally described the accessory as gas. The attitude of most of the officers to the accessory and to the ill-assorted soldiers in charge of it was well summed up by the old school captain Thomas in Robert Graves' goodbye to all that. Thomas said, quote, It is damnable. It's not soldiering to use stuff like that. Even though the Germans did start it, it's dirty. It's and it'll bring us bad luck. We're sure to bungle it. 
take those new gas companies. Sorry, excuse me. This once, I mean accessory companies. Their very look makes me tremble. Chemistry dons the London University. A few lads straight from school. One or two NCOs and the old soldier type trained together for three weeks. Then given a job responsible as this? As responsible as this? Of course they'll bungle it. How could they do anything else? And in this book you read about a bunch of failed or like incidents that occurred where they had accidents with the gas and accidentally poisoned themselves like horribly with mustard gas and things like that. Um, I think we can skip ahead though. I want to get some other parts of this book in. So we're going to read page 23 now uh, on Porton Down. So Fulkes tried his best to play down this image. He was tireless in his efforts to promote gas. He acted as an ambassador, even to the neutral nations not fighting the war, but who had warned, who had wanted to know more about the potentialities of chemical weapons. He introduced open days at the special brigade's headquarters in Helfout, where there were regular demonstrations to convince the skeptical, quote, on several occasions, unquote, Fulkes recalled, quote, there were more and than a hundred generals present at the time, and three hundred or four hundred officers altogether. Unquote. Winston Churchill visited Helfout and became away. I don't know how you say that. Helfout and became away, and came away, according to Fulkes, powerfully impressed by chemical warfare, a conviction that was power that was to be crucial importance a quarter of a century later, when Britain's was next at war. Other VIP visitors included the Duke of Westminster and George Bernard Shaw. This publication, this public relations exercise was useful, but in the end, Fulkes won the battle against the critics of gas warfare through a simple military expediency. A chemical arms race developed. In the rush, which where there were no times to worry about ethics, soon virtually every leading chemist in Britain was at work on some of the aspects of gas warfare. 33 different British laboratories tested 150,000 known organic and inorganic compounds in an attempt to develop the most poisonous gas possible. And in 1916, the Massive Research and Development Organizations was given its focus when the British opened an installation whose name has been synonymous with poisonous gas ever since. The Chemical Warfare Establishment at Porton Down, occupying a 7,000-acre site on Salisbury Plain, Porton, whose work is described in Chapter 2, employed over a thousand scientists and soldiers whose job it was to transform the theories of laboratories into actual weapons. In a short time, chemical weapons moved from the fringes of the war into the very heart. In 1915, 3,600 tons of gas were discharged. In 19 1916, that figure more than quadrupled to 15,000 tons. Chemicals and airplanes vied with one another as the fastest developing forms of warfare. Gas attacks ceased to be carefully planned set-piece affairs and became an everyday occurrence. For the British, the expansion was due to the particular two new weapons. The Livens Projector and the Stokes Mortar that despite the prosaic titles, they were inventions as deadly as they were revolutionary. Quote, their hires of the Livens projector, unquote, one expert had written, quote, 
are the multiple rocket launchers of the aircraft cluster bombs, unquote. Captain F.H. Livens, the inventor of the projector, was marked by the two key characteristics, a passionate hatred for the Germans and an unflagging energy, a formal civil engineer and a commander of the Z Company of the Special Brigade, quote, Livens, unquote, recalls Fulkes, quote, had a strong personal feeling in the war connected, I believe, with a sinking of the Lusitania, unquote. He was a go-getter, enthusiastically leaping in and out of gas clouds to test their effects, and prone to commander's equipment he needed, if necessary, at the point of a gun. So, just a little bit about the opening there of Port and Down, which we've heard about a few times here in the Biosci War. And you're getting some of the history here from these two British chaps here, two British mates over in their book, The Higher Form of Killing, A Secret History of Biological, of Chemical and Biological Warfare. So now we're going to skip ahead and we're going to read a little bit from page 39 in the book. Uh, let's just make sure. Okay. So in 1929, Porton investigated a further 72 cases of mustard gassing and found evidence of fibrosis, TB, persistent laryngitis, TB of the spine, anemia, aphonia, conjectivitis, and pulmonary fibrosis. These, of course, were secret reports only declassified years later. In public, Porton maintained that the popular press, quote, scaremongered, unquote, about long-term effects of gas poisoning. Porton psychologists sat on the medical boards that judged the records and examined the bodies of men laying claim to the war pensions. The criteria for granting them, not surprisingly, were made exceptionally harsh. A definitive causal link had to be established between the disability and the actual gassing. An increased susceptibility to TB or bronchitis, though admitted, was not in itself sufficient grounds upon which to claim a pension. Many thousands of men continued to suffer from the effects of gassing in the First World War for the rest of their lives. One survivor of phosphine attack, Fred Cayley, admitted in the 1980s that he had been seeing a doctor every week since 1917. Britain was still awarded pensions to gas victims in the 1980s. How many have never claimed but suffered and died in ignorance is not known. Modern investigations have revealed that munitions workers who were employed in the manufacturing of mustard gas are ten times more susceptible to cancer than the average. There are no cancer figures for men actually gassed on the field of battle. In 1970, the World Health Organization reported that, quote, an examination of the mortality data on 1,267 British war pensioners who suffered from mustard gas poisoning in the 1914-18 through 18 war, who are still alive in January 1st of 1930, showed almost all, uh, over 80%, had chronic bronchitis in that date. In subsequent years, an excess of deaths attributed to cancer of the lung and pleura uh, was observed amongst them. Twenty-nine deaths found compared 
with 14 expected. Such grisly after-effects were neither foreseen nor understood in the 1920s. Porton merely admitted that, quote, 10 years after gassing, there are patients who exhibited definite residue both anatomically and clinically that are definitively due to either one of or a combination of gases, unquote. The wounded and disabled were largely forgotten, except insofar, as one expert put it, as they provided valuable data, quote, which it would be impossible to obtain elsewhere, unquote. Gradually, the image of the line of the blinded mustard gas victims, each with a hand on the shoulder of the man in front, shuffled away into the folk memory of the First World War. Poison gas was the once forbidden weapon, now took place in the world's arsenals. It was remained and remained there ever since. So I, I, you know, I used a highlighter on that passage there because it's again that logic we see of like, well, where else would we get this information? And I'm not saying like the people that created chemical weapons or or advocated for the use of them would know that they would get this information out of it, but how many times in every episode we've seen some pragmatic philosophy of, well, if we didn't do it, we wouldn't be able to have the information that we have. And so it says the wounded and the disabled were largely largely forgotten, except insofar as one expert, expert put it, as they provided valuable data, quote, which it would be impossible to obtain elsewhere, unquote. So now we'll skipping ahead to page 43 uh, in the higher form of killing. At the end of the war, Porton was not closed down. Instead, in 1919, the government set up a Holland committee. They unanimously recommended that Porton continue in action and went on to lay down many of the principles upon which this establishment is run today. In view of the large of the quote large degree of risk unquote entailed in the work, quote, a very liberal allowance of leave unquote three months a year was granted to the staff. Everything possible everything possible was done to attract quote the best brains in the century unquote to Porton, as long as quote secrets of national importance unquote were not disclosed. The scientists employed were given the right to publish their work and to attend the meetings held by the learned societies. Salaries were generous, particularly in the senior positions and committee, quote, expressed the feeling that nothing under 2000 a year could be relied upon uh, to induce a man of the first rank to accept the post of director of research at Porton, unquote, making it one of the most highly paid scientific jobs in the country. The committee also concluded, this is a, a quote from that, that, the that it is impossible to divorce the study of defense against the gas from the study of the use of gas as an offensive weapon. To the efficiency of the defense depends entirely on an accurate knowledge as to what progress it is being or is likely to be made on the offensive use of this weapon. This is a crucial admission. No matter how loudly the British or any other nation renounces gas warfare in public, in secret, they felt bound to give the scientists free hand to go on devising the deadliest weapons they could, on the grounds that they first had to be invented before countermeasures could be prepared. 
Port and Down made use of this logic between 1919 and 1939 to carry out mass offensive research, developing gas grenades and hand contamination bombs, a toxic air smoke bomb charged with new arsenic code named DM was tested, anti-tank weapons were produced and Porton developed an aircraft spray tank capable of dispensing mustard gas from a height of 15,000 feet. At the same time, the weapon at the First World War, the Livens projector, the mortar, the chemical shell, and even the cylinder were all modified and improved. They are extensive. They are extensive human testing often involved scores of men at a time. Some of the tests were so drastic one wonders what could possibly have motivated men to go through with them. In 1922, for example, 20, quote, observers, unquote, were placed in a gas chamber before 10 minutes, expo for 10 minutes exposure, quote, the limit of tolerability, unquote, to the arsenic gas DA and suffered. This is an excerpt from that experiment, apparently. A disagreeable sense of pressure over the head, dulling, aching in the roots of the teeth, and sense of pressure in the ears, salivation is also marked. Gnawing pain at the back of the face, numbness and cold of the fingers and feet, dryness of the throat, pain and coughing, retching and nausea are all observed. On removal of the chamber, all symptoms increased in intensity and at once. The men felt definitely ill. The higher concentrations they lie down, sighs and rolls about. The lower concentrations there in a tendency to keep moving in all attempts to find a place of relief. Mustard gas, quote, the king of gases, unquote, employed the most hu human volunteers. Just one experiment in 1924 involved 40 men. In 1928, large numbers of humans observers were contaminated in five separate aerial spray tests. In the same year, bricks were coated with mustard after a fortnight men handled them and vapor given off was found to still be powerful enough to cause human burns of, sever of a severe character in 1929 in october of 1929 quote two subjects received copious applications of crude mustard which practically covered the inner aspects of the forearm after wiping the liquid mustard off roughly with a small tuft of grass th the ointment seven weeks old was lightly rubbed with the fingers over the areas. This merely a random selection of the sort of work which was done on Britain in Britain's similar research. Similar research was being carried out throughout the world. Italy established a Servizio Chemical Militare in nineteen twenty three with an extensive proving grounds in the north of the country. The main French chemical warfare installation was the Atelier de Torinchnia de Puchete near Paris. The Japanese Navy began work on the chemical weapons in 1923. The army followed suit in 1925. In Germany, despite the fact that Haber Kaiser Wilhelm Institute had closed down in 1919, limited defensive work continued later to the form of the to form the basis of Germany's offensive effort. And in 1924, the Military Chemical Administration of the Red Army was established and Russia's chemical troops were stationed at the uh, Provincial Army Headquarters. Chemical weapons were not merely researched and developed. 
they were used. At the beginning of 1919, British employed the M device, which produced clouds of arsenic smoke, and Archangel, which they intervened in the Russian Civil War, dropping the canisters from airplanes into the dense forests. The anti-Bolshevik White Army was equipped with British gas, gas shells, and the Red Army were also alleged to use chemicals. Later in 1919, Fulkes was dispatched to India. In the August, urged the war office to use chemicals against the Afghans and were and rebellious tribesmen of the northwest frontier. Quote, Ignorance, lack of instruction and discipline, and the absence of protection in the part of Afghans and tribesmen will undoubtedly enhance the casualty-producing value of mustard gas in the frontier fighting, unquote. Many of the cabinet were dubious, including the Secretary of State of India. Fulkes had little time for their scruples. One, and here's an excerpt from Fulkes about that, I guess. On the question of morality... Gas has been openly accepted as a recognized weapon for the future, and there is no longer any question of stealing an unfair advantage by taking an unsuspecting enemy unawares. Apart from this, it had been pointed out to the tribesmen are not bound by the Hague Convention, and they do not conform to its most elementary rules. So, Folke is talking about using the gases on the Afghans who were unsuspecting and unable to defend against that sort of biological weapon being used there, which is quite barbaric, even though they're trying to make the claim that it's a moral higher form of killing to use gas as a weapon. So what other sort of weapons would people of this sort of mind develop in the future that they would consider to be higher forms of killing to as we saw in the PNAC article, to uh, use as a useful political agents and useful political tools, uh, viruses and microbes, right? So they were talking about, we read that article last week. Now, reading from page 118 in a higher form of killing, and then I think after that, we'll go ahead and I need to watch my time here. We'll go ahead and skip into uh, the intermission after this uh, section and then we'll come back to the rest of this book at a later point in the BioSci War but for now we'll just read the pages I had planned out page 118 through 121 and then we'll go ahead and go into the intermission today which I think that you nerds out there will really dig um, as far as the content that we cover in the intermission and the links that are made there as we start to get into some of the Rockefeller Foundation connections. So today, just reading from The Higher Form of Killing in the Biosci War, the same title as the episode. And uh, we are reading from a different location today, so we have a different mic and might be sounding a little differently. The Americans' attitude to chemical warfare was different from the British. Every city in Europe was vulnerable to gas attack, and millions of civilians learned to live with the fear that one day what the enemy's bombers brought to them might be explosive, but mustard gas, phosphine, or some new, quote, supergas, unquote. America was out of range of bomber attack. Safe from fear of airborne chemical retaliation against her cities, the United States can contemplate the use of poison gas more dispassionately. Unlike Britain, 
German and Russia, there were no legal restraints upon the United States to prevent her from using gas. The Senate had not ratified the Geneva Protocol, had not ratified the Geneva Protocol. At the same time, the existence of the Independent Chemical Warfare Service meant that the powerful pressure group was always around to put in the case for an increased congressional appropriation. In 1940, the United States spent $2 million on the Chemical Warfare Service. In 1941, when the Chemical Rearmament Program was launched, this was an this was increased more than 30-fold, to over $60 million. In 1942, expenditure reached a staggering $1 billion. There was a corresponding increase in, personal, in personnel from 2,000 to 6,000 to 20,000 in 1942. If the Army, Navy, and the Air Force were all getting more money, so the argument ran, the CWS should surely get some too. As a result, America soon had a poison gas producing capacity vastly in excess of anything she really needed. In the three years in 19, from 1942 to 1945, the United States opened up 13 new chemical warfare plants. The most ambitious was a $60 million Pine Bluff arsenal in Arkansas. Constructed work, construction work began on December 2nd of 1941, five days before Pearl Harbor on the 15,000-acre site. Within eight months, an army uh, of laborers and construction experts had laid miles of the road and railway track, building factories, storage depots, laboratories, shops, offices, a hospital, a fire station, a police building, water, gas, and electricity supplies, and a telephone exchange. After time, the statistics of a size and scope of the Americans' poison gas program to, began to glaze the eye. Pine Buff alone and its peak employed 10,000 men and women, and even made the labor supplied by a near, by prisoner of war camps. From July 31, 1942, when it first went into production, through to 1945, the arsenal produced literally millions of grenades, bombs, and shells filled with chemical agents, as well as thousands of tons of chlorine, mustard gas, and lewisite. At the end of the war, most of it had to be dumped into the sea. Its manufacture had cost the American taxpayer $500 million. In 1942, another $60 million installation was opened near Denver, Colorado. The Rocky Mountain Arsenal occupied 20,000 acres, employed 3,000 people, and had produced 87,000 tons of toxic chemicals by the end of the war. The same year, the Americans opened a test site worthy of their vast investment in chemical warfare, one of the largest gas weapon trial areas in the world, more than a quarter of a million acres on, his, on the edge of the Great Salt Lake Desert in Utah, known as the Dugway Proving Ground. It was 40 times the size of Porton Down and housed test facilities that were ver a veritable dream for the men of the CWS. Replica replicas of the German and Japanese houses were constructed to examine how they would withstand chemical attack. Caves were dug into the mountains to see how well entrenched enemies might survive a gassed shell and bomb barrage. The Americans also acquired from the British an interest in spraying mustard gas from the air. Dugway was so vast that there was enough room for the U.S. Army Air Force to experiment with high-altitude spray. 
the tests were successful and the United States, which had entered into the war with 1,500 spray tanks, ended up with 113,000. The Chemical Warfare Service empire grew huge despite the opposition of the president. Unlike Churchill, Roosevelt had a particular aversion to poison gas, regarding it as barbaric and inhumane. His attitude was well expressed by Admiral Leahy, his senior naval advisor and later President Truman's chief of staff. Using gas, said Leahy, would, quote, violate every Christian ethic I had ever heard of and all over the known laws of the world, of laws of the war, unquote. Right up until Roosevelt's death, CWS complained that the pr proposal they put forward for using poison gas would not be, quote, seriously considered, unquote, but, quote, immediately rejected due to personal bias, unquote, by the president. Roosevelt was prevailed upon to authorize the U.S. giant U.S. program only because, sorry, let me start that again. Roosevelt was prevailed upon to authorize the giant U.S. program only because of the widely held fear that Japan was preparing to initiate gas warfare. Like America, Japan had not ratified the Geneva Protocol. The reports from China continued to suggest that Japanese were using gas against Chinese soldiers and civilians. One account suggested that, quote, up to the end of June 1941, the Japanese had used gas 876 times, unquote, in their war against the Chiang Kai-shek, Chiang Kai-shek. In, in October of 1941, for example, during a battle in the suburbs of the city of Yi. Chang, Japanese planes were said to have dropped more than 300 gas bombs filled with mustard gas, killing 600 soldiers, Chinese soldiers, and wounding more than 1,000. Photographs of the casualties were published in American newspapers. Gas atrocities made, made uh, good propaganda, and throughout the war there was regular calls by the U.S. press for Americans to use gas in revenge. Public opinion polls suggested that as much as 40% of the population favored the use of gas against Japan, and newspaper headlines screamed their support, quote, We should gas Japan, in, un, in quote, in 1943. Quote, You can cook them better with gas, in quote, in 1941. And quote, We should gas the Japs. Should we gas the Japs, in 1945. Roosevelt resisted the pressure, although he did issue a series of war stark warnings to stern warnings to Japan. Quote, I desire to make it unmistakably clear, unquote, he stated in June of 1942, quote, that if Japan persists in the inhumane warfare against China or against any other of the United States nations, such action will be regarded by this government as though against the United States, and retaliation in kind in full measure will be metered out. Unquote. The warning was reissued the following year to embrace Germany as well, and expressed an even more somber language. Here's the excerpt from that. I have been loath to believe that the nation, even our present enemies, could or would be willing to lose upon mankind such an inhumane weapon. We promise to pay any per per perpetuators of such crimes full and swift retaliation in kind, and I feel obligated now to warn the Axis armies and the Axis people in Europe and in Asia that terrible consequences of any use of the inhumane methods of their part will be brought down swiftly and surely upon their own heads. 
It is not until the end of the war that Americans discovered just how exaggerated had been their fears of Japanese gas stocks. Japan, Japanese offensive work had actually reached its peak in 1935, and it had gone into decline by 1941. It had virtually stopped. In 1942, all offensive training in the Narshino Gas School was ended. In 1944, all stocks of gas were recalled by the Japanese High Command. U.S. investigators reported that Japan had developed no gases other than those, quote, which had been known to the world for 20 years, unquote. They had used haphazard research methods, been given no help by the Germans, and that both offensively and defensively the country's supplies were, quote, inadequate for waging gas warfare on a modern scale, unquote. At the end of the war, Set against just 7,500 tons of Japanese poison gas, the Americans had 135,000 tons, 20,000 tons more than the combined total used by every nation fighting in the First World War. And that sounds like typical uh, American war policy. <laughs> uh, so that's, again, reading from the book, the Higher Form of Killing, A Secret History of Chemical and Biological Warfare, uh, just to get further down into the bio war. We need to know history. We need to know more about the use of chemical weapons, the reasoning behind developing them, and uh, the various countries that are at play, the various uh, chemical uh, biological weapons, uh, proving grounds such as uh, Dugway, which is actually synchronistically enough about an hour to the west of me here where I sit right now uh, but for now I'm going to take us into the next part of the journey here from the bio sci war and we're going to be learning about a book that I've heard about from uh, some others in the research community like Kevin Cole and Richard Grove and that book is known as the molecular vision of life uh, Caltech the Rockefeller Foundation and the rise of a new biology Monographs on the History of Philosophy of Biology. Uh, this is a book about the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, their interest in molecular biology by Lily E. Kay. Uh, the fascinating study examines the rise of American molecular biology uh, to disciplinary dominance, focusing on the period between 1930 and the elucidation of DNA structure in the mid-1950s. Research undertaken during the period, with its focus on genetic structure and function, endowed scientists with an unprecedented power over life. By viewing the new biology as both scientific and cultural enterprise, Lily E. K. shows that the growth of molecular biology was a result of synthetic efforts by, a key, scientists, by key scientists and their sponsors to direct development of biology. Uh, sorry, development of biological research toward a shared vision of science and society. She analyzes, analyzes and I'm just reading here from the, probably, which is like the back cover, uh, which is here on Amazon. Uh, her, let's see. She analyzes the motivations and mechanisms empowering the vision by focusing on two key institutions, Caltech and its sponsor, the Rockefeller Foundation. Her study explores the number of vital sometimes controversial topics 
among them the role of private power centers in shaping scientific agenda, and a politically dimensions of, quote, pure research, quote, pure, unquote, research. It also advances a sobering argument, the cognitive and social groundwork for genetic engineering and human genome projects was laid by the American architects of molecular biology during these early decades of the project. This book will be of interest to the molecular biologist, historian, sociologist, and the general reader alike. And it interests us because we want to know more about uh, the Rockefeller in, uh, Institute's interest in uh, their you know, monopolization of things like oil or medicine, and also what they may you know, view the research of molecular biology and how it could be interesting you know, to them for any particular reason, such as, you know, maintaining a level of dominance in the world or fashioning man, you know, anew or creating a society and the world in their image. So let's just go right into the book, The Molecular Vision of Life here. We are going to have uh, the computer give us a read of it. And so uh, we'll see you back here in just a little while. Including from the early 19. All right, just give me a sec here. Let me just get this. We're doing it live. Introduction during the 1930s, a new biology came into being that by the late 1950s was to endow scientists with unprecedented power over life. These three decades culminated in the elucidation of the self-replicating mechanisms of DNA and an explanation of its action in terms of information coding, representations that laid the cognitive foundations for genetic engineering. Scientists could now manipulate genes on the most fundamental level and attempt to control the course of biological and social evolution, they laid claim to the secret of life. The new biology, which became known as molecular biology, emerged as a dominant disciplinary trend. Its molecular vision of life promised to function as Occam's razor, paring down the convoluted explanations offered by traditional biological fields. This new science did not just evolve by natural selection of randomly distributed disciplinary variants, nor did it ascend solely through the compelling power of its ideas and its leaders. Rather, the rise of the new biology was an expression of the systematic cooperative efforts of America's scientific establishment scientists and their patrons to direct the study of animate phenomena along selected paths toward a shared vision of science and society. The aim of this book is to understand the historical process that propelled molecular biology to its dominant disciplinary status by uncovering the motivations and mechanisms empowering its ascent. It does so by focusing on two key institutions the Rockefeller Foundation and the California Institute of Technology. As has been well documented, the Rockefeller Foundation served as the principal patron of molecular biology from the 1930s to the 1950s. One, Caltech, a primary site for implementing the Foundation's project, became the most influential international center for research and training in molecular biology. Why did the Rockefeller Foundation launch and sustain with massive support a new biology program at that moment in history? From the entire range of contemporary biological IN3. For molecular vision of life theorists, why did scientists and their patrons privilege and promote a molecular study of life? 
why was Caltech selected as a primary site, and what accounted for its remarkable influence. Studied together, the trails leading to the answers reveal a synergy between intellectual capital and economic resources, a potent convergence of scientific goals and social agendas, shaped initially by the cultural imperatives of the interwar period and later modified by the experience of World War II. Some preliminary directions would be helpful before embarking on these trails. Specifically, a clarification of terms and meanings accompanies the delineation of the constitutive elements of the primary argument. Molecular Biology, A New Biology The term molecular biology and the authentic novelty of the field have been a subject of some debate among scientists and historians. Coined in 1938 by Warren Weaver, the director of the Rockefeller Foundation's Natural Science Division, the term was intended to capture the essence of the Foundation's program, its emphasis on the ultimate minuteness of biological entities. Two however, if by molecular biology one means the program sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation, this definition would include many practitioners of life science, e.g., biophysics and immunochemistry, not typically associated with the term. Current parlance tends to equate molecular biology with DNA molecular genetics, a definition that would exclude most of the research in life science during the 1930s and 1940s. To complicate matters further, it appears that some scientists who would never have identified themselves as molecular biologists were retroactively, in light of the high status of molecular biology during the 1960s, all too eager to reconstruct their careers as part of the molecular biology success story. Others, especially biochemists, resisted the sweeping of their parent disciplines into the whirlwind of hybridization. 3. In light of these divergent meanings of the term molecular biology, it is necessary to outline a set of criteria that together explain and justify use of the term in this study. Even though separately some of these structural features of molecular biology were not novel, assembled and amplified in a single program they eventually did constitute a coherent intellectual and institutional framework that departed sharply from traditional modes of biological research. One programmatic statements about the newness of the new biology were not limited to its patrons. The new biology, as geneticist Thomas Hunt Morgan put it in 1928, stressed the unity of life phenomena common to all organisms rather than the diversity. Thus the new biology would concentrate, for example, on respiration or on reproduction as a central biological, in contradistinction to biochemical. Problem, regardless of whether the object of study was a mammal or a bacterium. 4.2. Based on this rationale, it became far more convenient to study fundamental vital phenomena on their minimalist levels. Thus the new biology increasingly employed simple biological systems primarily bacteria and viruses as phenomenological probes or as conceptual models, the line of thinking that led to. Introduction 5 Jacques Monod's notorious dictum that what is true for the bacterium is true for the elephant. 3 By cleaving life processes from their host organisms, the molecular biology program aimed to discover general physico-chemical laws governing vital phenomena. In so doing it distanced its concerns from emergent properties, from interactive processes occurring within higher organisms, between organisms, e.g., symbiosis, and between organisms and their environments, thus bracketing out of biological discourse a broad range of phenomena generally subsumed under the term life. Concomitantly, 
this physico-chemical approach bypassed historical explanations in biology and developmental and evolutionary accounts of life processes the arrow of time. The new biology generally acknowledged only mechanisms of upward causation, ignoring the explanatory role of downward causation. For it would borrow methods not only from physics, mathematics, and chemistry but also from other fields of life science genetics, embryology, physiology, immunology, microbiology. The new biology aimed to transcend disciplinary boundaries and employ whatever tools the problem at hand demanded. Although the transfer of techniques between fields was certainly not new, the design of a large-scale program based on interdisciplinary research encompassing several disciplines was unprecedented. 5. By defining life in terms of fundamental physico-chemical mechanisms, molecular biology ultimately narrowed its principal focus to macromolecules, and until the mid-1950s it meant primarily the giant protein molecules. Molecular biology was based on the protein paradigm, the premise that the salient features of life reproduction, growth, neural function, immunity could be explained through the structures and functions of proteins. In fact, guided by the protein paradigm, research on antibodies occupied a key position within the new biology. This important chapter, however, has been written out of the history of molecular biology. 6. Molecular biology thus defined the locus of life phenomena principally at the submicroscopic region between 10,6 and 10,7 cm. That this region was the main functional domain of the new biology had immense consequences for the form and content of research. 7. This domain could be investigated primarily with complex and sophisticated apparatus, specifically designed to investigate life at this range of dimensions. Whereas only a couple of decades earlier biology laboratories housed mainly microscopes, petri dishes, and autoclaves, the new biology laboratories displayed an imposing technological landscape. Electron microscopes, ultracentrifuges, electrophoresis, spectroscopy, X-ray diffraction, isotopes, and scintillation counters became the sine qua non of biological research. 8. The cognitive focus on the molecular level also shaped the social structure of research. Partly because of the interdisciplinary nature of the problems to be investigated and partly because of the complexities and costs of the new apparatus and the intricacies of the techniques, research problems were often defined by the instruments designed to examine them and were increasingly addressed as team projects. Molecular biology studies thus entailed structural changes in the organization of departments and laboratories and the prizing of cooperation as an institutional strategy and a personal ethos. 6. Molecular Vision of Life One important disciplinary consequence of these characteristics of molecular biology was the loosening of the traditional grip of medicine over biological research. Whereas in the past biological research was shaped by the extent of its service role to medical schools, and, to a lesser extent, agriculture, the new biology, which focused on fundamental physico-chemical explanations, microorganisms, and submicrosocopic processes, had only indirect links to medicine. 5. As it turned out, the medical connection did affect the growth of molecular biology, even at Caltech. But in a convoluted and variable manner. During the 1930s, however, the designers of molecular biology carved for it a spacious, medicine-free niche within the disciplinary ecology of life science. They intended to create a new science of life, a science whose tributaries eventually converged on the molecular study of the gene. 
Rockefeller Foundation, Knowledge and Cultural Hegemony The cognitive and structural reconfigurations of molecular biology were greatly facilitated through the powerful resource base of the Rockefeller Foundation. During the years 1932-1959 the foundation poured about $25 million into the molecular biology program in the United States, more than one-fourth of the foundation's total spending for the biological sciences outside of medicine, including, from the early 1940s on, enormous sums for agriculture. Although there was a great deal of fluctuation in the annual expenditures for science during that 25-year period, the pre-World War II level of Rockefeller Foundation support for molecular biology amounted on average to about 2% of the entire federal budget for scientific research and development. This figure gains significance when we consider that the lion's share of government support for the life sciences went to agricultural research. When we also include the indirect effects of the Foundation's support for molecular biology in Europe and its massive support for biomedical research, the financial resources for molecular biology become even more impressive. It is clear that the Rockefeller Foundation was in a strong position to shape fields in life science that fell outside the scientific domain of the federal government. 6. The Foundation's power to shape life science transcended the dollar amount of its investment, its effectiveness lay in creating and promoting institutional mechanisms of interdisciplinary cooperation through extensive systems of grants and fellowships, and in systematically fostering a project-oriented, technology-based biology. As the correspondence files, reports, and diaries of the officers reveal, during the 1930-1950s the Rockefeller projects became densely interwoven with the scientific agenda of those universities that were heavily supported through the Foundation's molecular biology program. The Foundation's network permeated their academic infrastructures, a significant number of Rockefeller trustees held top administrative positions in the universities. The Foundation officers cultivated advisors and contacts in nearly every discipline and had detailed knowledge of the academic traffic, the officers became central to what in effect became an informal peer review system. It was not uncommon for scientists and administrators to consult the Foundation's grapevine regarding academic appointments, reputations, personalities, travel, and potential projects. Weaver was even invited to sit in on Introduction 7 Faculty Meetings and within the limits of professional discretion and philanthropic etiquette, the officers were pleased to be closely involved on many interlocking levels of the scientific enterprise. One of the strongest motives for redirecting academic practice and for creating institutional mechanisms compatible with the Foundation's design was the drive toward cooperation, a key feature in the molecular biology program. Cooperation did not mean just collaboration the grassroots, spontaneous activity of scientists sharing theoretical and experimental tools. Interdisciplinary cooperation, with its emphasis on group projects, was a long-range strategy and an overarching philosophy. Inaugurated in 1933, the Molecular Biology Program was planned as part of a joint venture between the divisions of Natural, Medical and Social Sciences. Within the Natural Science Division, the molecular biology program itself was cooperative on several levels, among biological disciplines and between biology and the physical sciences. Again and again, as one reads through the Rockefeller reports, one is struck by the constant references to various projects as the isotope group, the protein group, or the neurospora group. 
one is also struck by the special attention to what the foundation referred to as cooperative individualists, men whose intellectual enterprise included a managerial temperament. The term cooperation had an even broader meaning. It was more than an institutional strategy for fostering interdisciplinarity. As a modification of the extremes of laissez-faire, cooperation was a political and economic ideology of the evolving corporate structures of post-World War I America, specifically science, industry, and business. The reorganization of biology around the standard of cooperation reflected the broader reorganization of American science during the Great War and the restructuring of social relations in corporate America. Mirroring its industrial and business sponsors, the new scientific enterprise no longer extolled the virtuosity of the individual. Just as the multi-unit business structures depended on the team player and the coordinating manager, so the new science relied on management and group projects directed toward interdisciplinary cooperation. There was a remarkable commensurability between levels, between the goals of the new program and the institutional structures that supported it, between ideology and form. Similarly, the infusion of massive and sophisticated apparatus into biology must also be understood on several levels of significance. Instruments are not mere devices for discovering objective reality but complex processes of intervention for representing nature, processes that alter nearly all aspects of scientific practice. The new technologies not only raised the cost of research, they brought about structural changes. With large-scale commercial equipment almost unknown before World War II, new instruments often had to be constructed in situ. Workshops and special rooms had to be built to house the new equipment, thereby greatly expanding not only the budget but also the physical space of biological laboratories. These technologies also demanded a type of technical expertise that allied biology more closely with the physical sciences and engineering, this alliance too was part of the Foundation's goal. More fundamentally, the reification of the molecular level as the essential locus of life, with the attendant reorientation of laboratory practice, altered the epist. 8. Molecular Vision of Life Mological Foundations of Biological Research, Making the Representation of Life Contingent Upon Technological Intervention Conceived at the twilight of an era characterized by its faith in technology and business, the design of the new biology not only reflected the particular bias of its principal architects physicist Max Mason and mathematician Warren Weaver but the more general bias of a technocratic elite who had dominated American culture during the 1920s. Simon Flexner, Rockefeller Foundation trustee and director of the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, in 1934 disapproved of the new program. Not only did he question the soundness of a biology managed by physicists, he doubted that a collection of instruments and techniques constituted a new biology. In ways that Flexner had not envisioned, the program did just that. 7. The force of the Foundation's molecular biology program and especially the effective management of Warren Weaver, have been amply acknowledged and debated. Caltech geneticist and Nobel laureate George Wells Beadle observed that during the dozen years following 1953, the elucidation of DNA structure. Nobel Prizes were awarded to 18 scholars for research into the molecular biology of the gene, and all but one were either fully or partially sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation under Weaver's guidance. Not only did Weaver help shape Beatles' scientific path, he influenced the careers of hundreds of others, inside and outside the field of molecular biology. 
eight historians of science have offered divergent interpretations of the pervasive influence of the molecular biology program and Weaver's influential role. They have ranged from celebration to condemnation, the program was fruitful and innovative, the program was elitist and conservative, merely a process of technology transfer, it was a subversion of biological knowledge and of the academic order. All have concurred, however, that the program did have a profound impact on life science. 9. Although several works have examined the structures, mechanisms, and effects of the Foundation's molecular biology program, only scant attention has been paid to the broader intellectual and social agenda within which the program was nested. Little has been said about the inscribed cultural and ideological premises or the historical forces underlying the development of a molecular framework for the study of animate phenomena. This book addresses this lacuna by situating the molecular biology program within the Rockefeller Foundation's Science of Man agenda, thereby viewing the program as both a scientific and a cultural enterprise. The motivation behind the enormous investment in the new agenda was to develop the human sciences as a comprehensive explanatory and applied framework of social control grounded in the natural, medical, and social sciences. Conceived during the late 1920s, the new agenda was articulated in terms of the contemporary technocratic discourse of human engineering, aiming toward an endpoint of restructuring human relations in congruence with the social framework of industrial capitalism. The support for life science must be seen within that larger investment in the human sciences. Within that agenda, the new biology, originally named psychobiology, was erected on the bedrock of the physical sciences in order to rigorously explain and eventually control the fundamental mechanisms governing human behavior, placing a particularly strong emphasis on heredity. Introduction 9 This conjunction of cognitive and social goals had a strong historical connection to eugenics, to its promise and perils. By 1930 the Rockefeller Foundation had supported a number of eugenically directed projects. By the time of the inauguration of the new science of man, however, the goal of social control through selective breeding had suffered severe setbacks. As an intellectual program, eugenics guided by the crude principles of Charles B. Davenport had lost much of its force, and as a social movement it carried the stigma of racial prejudice and political propaganda. Eugenics as such became a scientific liability. The quest for rationalized human reproduction, however, never quite lost its intuitive appeal, even when it was later modified by the Nazi experience. For the architects and champions of a science-based technological utopianism, human engineering through controlled breeding remained a compelling social vision. Thus one of the sub-arguments of this book is that eugenic goals played a significant role in the conception and design of the molecular biology program, an argument that hinges on the politics of meaning. Precisely because the old eugenics had lost its scientific validity, a space was created for a new program that promised to place the study of human heredity and behavior on rigorous grounds. A concerted physico-chemical attack on the gene was initiated at the moment in history when it became unacceptable to advocate social control based on crude eugenic principles and outmoded racial theories. The molecular biology program through the study of simple biological systems and the analyses of protein structure, promised a surer, albeit much slower, way toward social planning based on sounder principles of eugenic selection. Time was seldom a deterrent for the visionaries of the Rockefeller Foundation. As Wycliffe Rose, 
head of the International Education Board, used to remind his pragmatic colleagues, remember we are not in a hurry. Moreover, as Raymond Fosdick, trustee and later president of the Rockefeller Foundation, acknowledged during the 1920s, in the quest for enlightened social control, there is no royal road to the millennium, no shortcut to the promised land. 10 Indeed, support of the human sciences by the Rockefeller philanthropies did not begin during the early 1930s with their Science of Man agenda. By then they had supported biology for about 15 years and had been the main force behind the development of the social sciences in America. Scholars have generally concurred that the Rockefeller philanthropies have played a leading role in shaping the human sciences, and that their projects were in large measure an effort to build a base of technical expertise in order to lay a rational foundation for social reform. However, the meanings and interpretations of the foundation's motives and its impact have diverged. The political significance of such terms as technical expertise, rational foundation, and social reform have been contested and studies of the motivations behind the wholesale promotion of specific intellectual programs and institutional structures span a wide spectrum of approaches. They range from Marxian analyses to liberal perspectives, from arguments of economic determinism to claims of intellectual autonomy. Alright, so there you get a good taste of the introduction that's still not getting into the meat of the book there but uh, we'll be coming back to the molecular vision of life and as you can see there that helps us tie in and understand the bio war and uh, the eugenics mindset and worldview behind institutions like the Rockefeller Foundation and things that they uh, are interested in funding or organizing that seem philanthropic that seem like they're organizing to help mankind okay let me bring let me bring that level up a little sorry about that i had it down for the book it was loud and now i'm a little low there we go but yeah um you know a lot more than we've covered so far in the bio war we've gotten into a lot of the actual biological weapons manufacturing connections to fort dietrich and dugway and the plum island research and the operation paperclip and uh, gene wars and connections into uh, the Eco Health Alliance and uh, NAAID and uh, Peter Dejak and gene therapy and uh, also the gain of function research was the word that I was struggling to find there. Gain of function research on uh, these coronaviruses to make them more virulent, to make them easily spreadable among human populations, to make them aerosolized and how the military has done lots of investigation into aerosolizing bacteria, aerosolizing plague, aerosolizing anthrax, doing live tests, of course, always on the uh, defensive to make sure that we're ready for what the enemy is going to be doing. Never any chance that the, the implications there would be that then the things that end up manifesting in our reality, such as the coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2, would be any possible you know there's no possible links there to the type of research that is being done uh, these are things that just happen in nature suddenly you're studying SARS-CoV-2 bat viruses in a lab and then then in the next hand there a worldwide pandemic occurs with the same exact virus that you've been gain of function uh, researching that is a lab made virus uh, that has been made in a lab 
and whether you want to say it was possibly leaked, uh, leaked or uh, 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 what the word that I'm looking for is intentionally uh, released onto the population. Um, you know, I, I'm more on the side that this was done intentionally so that they could then get out in front of the response to a worldwide pandemic like this from a biological weapons attack. And also there was a lot of financial interests into uh, another sort of theft of the world, which we cover a lot in the Grand Theft World podcast, the larger narratives of what's going on in the people that stand to, you know, que bono. Que bono is a common question asked in the so-called conspiracy movements, right? Uh, to see who's going to benefit, who's the beneficiary of these actions. And uh, in this case, we see Moderna, we see Pfizer, we see the uh, vaccine manufacturers winning out big time uh, with their mRNA technologies that uh, we covered recently that DARPA, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, BARDA are funding uh, behind Moderna and these technologies which are eventually going to be turned into software and oh whoopsie daisy now you only need this one shot that's going to take care of all the viruses and we'll have microchips to monitor and clear the blood when there's symptoms coming up for COVID and you'll be able to report live that you're co symptom free and COVID free no coronaviruses uh, as you travel around in the minority report. Uh, but then if we just look back at the last episode, and we've definitely covered, I think, in the first episode of the BioSci War, Purpose and Scope, but last week the message in the anthrax from the uh, New American Century Rebuilding America's Defense Strategies, Forces, and Resources for a New Century, uh, we had the excerpt there, although it takes several decades for the process of transformation to unfold, in time, the art of warfare on land, or air, land, and sea will be vastly different than it is today, and, quote, combat, unquote, likely will take place in new dimensions. In space, quote, cyberspace, unquote, and perhaps, perhaps the world of microbes. Air warfare may no longer be fought by piloting, manning tactical fighter aircraft sweeping the skies of opposing fighters, but a regime of dominated by a long-range, stealthy, unmanned craft. On land, the clash of massive combined arms, armored forces, may be replaced by the dashes of much lighter, stealthier, and information-intensive forces, augmented by fleets of robots, some small enough to fit in a soldier's pocket. Control of the sea could be largely determined not by fleets, of surface combatants and aircraft carriers, but from land and space-based systems, forcing naives, uh, voice, forcing navies to maneuver and fight underwater. Space itself will become a theater of war, as nations gain access to space capabilities and come to rely on them. Further, the distinction between military and commercial space systems. Combatants and non-combatants will become blurred. Information systems will become an important focus of attack, particularly in U.S. enemies seeking to short-circuit sophisticated American forces, and advanced forms of biological warfare that can, quote, target, unquote, specific genotypes may transform biological warfare from the realm of terror to a politically useful tool. And now, 
in the essence of time for me i'm going to go ahead and switch to the outro clip and then we're going to go ahead and end today's episode of the bio war this from a gentleman some of you may have heard of known as james corbett uh from a uh, gentleman from Jap- uh from canada who now lives in japan and his uh channel on youtube was recently terminated, so we have a, a documentary from YouTube here, only because when I'm live streaming, I don't like to have hiccups and players from weird uh, apps that haven't been that well developed use, you know, but I'm, I do use Odyssey and Library and BitChute and Float and these other things as alternatives quite regularly, and, uh, you know, brand new tube and some of these other ones, Rumble, we're getting into, we're going to start redistributing Grand Theft World on there, but James Corbett no longer available on YouTube. You can still catch him on BitChute Odyssey. Uh, you can bookmark his website. His w- website will always be there. They embed the f- files either directly on their server or in uh, the past. You can see they've gone and linked these into Odyssey, which should make them pretty much available. So this is a documentary along what the uh, lines of the molecular vision of life and the eugenics uh, information that we were getting into there. We're going to continue down that to end out the episode today with uh, how Big Oil conquered the world. This is the last 20 minutes or so of that documentary. Two uh, combined together, I think, make for a much better understanding of the world that we live in today and the types of things that are going on and the worldviews behind them. And uh, with that, we'll close out today's bio sci war, a uh, higher form of killing. And I appreciate you guys for watching TylerBlower.com live streams and we'll be back uh, next week with more of the BioSci War. Thank you. ...developed just enough to prepare them for lives of drudgery in a factory. Into the midst stepped John D. Rockefeller with his first great act of public charity, the establishment of the University of Chicago. He was aided in this task by Frederick Taylor Gates, a Baptist minister that Rockefeller befriended in 1889 and who would go on to be John Dee's most trusted philanthropic advisor. Gates would go on to write a short tract, The Country School of Tomorrow, that laid out the Rockefeller plan for education. In our dream, we have limitless resources, and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. The present educational conventions fade from our minds, and, unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or science. We are not to raise up from among them authors, orators, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians. Nor will we cherish even the humbler ambition to raise up from among them lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of whom we now have ample supply. Although Rockefeller's resources weren't exactly limitless, they might as well have been. In 1902, he established the General Education Board to help implement Gates's vision for the country school of tomorrow with a staggering $180 million endowment. The Rockefeller influence on education was felt almost immediately, and it was amplified by help from fellow monopolists of the era who were approaching the topic of philanthropy from the same angle. Although best known as a steel magnate, Andrew Carnegie's fortune started on the railroads transporting Rockefeller's standard oil around the country, and was greatly magnified by a lucrative investment in property near Oil Creek that provided steady, profitable oil sales. In 1905, he established the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, 
a tax-free foundation through which Carnegie and his appointees could direct the development of the education system in the United States and, eventually, worldwide. In 1910, Rockefeller followed suit by establishing the Rockefeller Foundation, which became the tax-free umbrella organization for his philanthropic ambitions. As the Reese Committee, a congressional investigation into the activities of these tax-free foundations in the 1950s discovered, it wasn't long before Carnegie's endowment approached Rockefeller's foundation with a proposal to cooperate on their shared desire to transform the American education system in their own image. Norman Dodd, the director of research for the Congressional Committee who was granted access to the Carnegie Endowment's board minutes, explains. So they approach the Rockefeller Foundation with the suggestion that that portion of education which is, could be considered domestic be handled by the Rockefeller Foundation and that portion which is international should be handled by the endowment. And they then decide that the key to the success of these two operations lay in the, an alteration of the teaching of American history. So they approach four of the then most prominent teachers of American history in the country, people like Charles and Mary Byrd, and their suggestion to them is will they alter the manner in which they present this subject and they get turned down flat. So they then decide that it is necessary for them to do, as they say, build our own stable of historians. And, if, and then they approach the Guggenheim Foundation, which specializes in fellowships, and say, when we find young men in the process of studying for doctorates in the field of American history, and we feel that they are uh, the right caliber, will you grant them fellowships on our say-so? And the answer is yes. So under that condition, eventually they assemble 20. And they take this 20 potential teachers of American history to London and there they're briefed into what is expected of them when as and if they secure appointments in keeping with the doctorates they will have earned. And um, that, new, that group of 20 historians ultimately becomes the nucleus of the American Historical Association. And then toward the end of the 1920s, the endowment grants to the American Historical Association $400,000 for a study of our history in a manner which points to what can this country be, can it look forward to in the future. And uh, that culminates in a seven-volume study, book, study, the last volume of which is, of course, in essence, a summary of the contents of the other six. And the essence of the last volume is the future of this country belongs to collectivism, 
administered with characteristic American efficiency. With this base for transformation firmly established, the Rockefeller Foundation and like-minded organizations embarked on a program so ambitious that it almost defies comprehension. They transformed the practice of medicine. As usual, the oligarchs that funded this change were also there to profit from it, and once again, John D. took his cue from Devil Bill's example. William Rockefeller had called his brand of snake oil New Joel for New Oil, and Standard Oil spun off New Joel as a laxative under their Stanco subsidiary. Manufactured on the same premises as Flit, an insecticide also derived from Standard Oil's byproducts, New Joel sold at the druggist for 28 cents per 6-ounce bottle. It cost Standard Oil less than one-fifth of a cent to manufacture. Pharmaceuticals provided a lucrative new opportunity for the oligarchs. But in a turn-of-the-century America that was still largely based on naturopathic herbal remedies, it was a tough sell. The oligarchy went to work changing that. In 1901, John D. established the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. The institute recruited Simon Flexner, a pathology professor at the University of Pennsylvania, to serve as its director. His brother, Abraham, was an educator who was contracted by the Carnegie Foundation to write a report on the state of the American medical education system. His study, the Flexner Report, along with the hundreds of millions of dollars that the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations were to shower on medical research in the coming years, resulted in a sweeping overhaul of the American medical system. Naturopathic and homeopathic medicine, medical care focused on the unpatentable, unmarketable natural remedies and cures, was now dismissed as quackery. Only drug-based allopathic medicine requiring expensive medical procedures and lengthy hospital stays was to be taken seriously. The fortunes of Carnegie, Morgan, and Rockefeller financed surgery, radiation, and synthetic drugs. They were to become the economic foundations of the new medical economy. The takeover of the medical industry was accomplished by the takeover of the medical schools. Well, the people that we're talking about, Rockefeller and Carnegie in particular, came to the picture and said, we will put up money. They offered tremendous amounts of money to the schools that would agree to cooperate with them. The donor said to the schools, we're, we're giving you all this money. Now, would it be too much to ask if we could put some of our people on your board of directors to see that our money is being spent wisely? Almost overnight, all of the major universities received large grants from these sources and also accepted one, two, or three of these people that I mentioned on their board of directors and the schools literally were taken over by the financial interests that put up the money. Now what happened as a result of that is that the schools did receive uh, an infusion of money. They were able to build new buildings. They were able to add expensive equipment to their laboratories. They were able to hire top-notch teachers. But at the same time as doing that, they skewed the whole thing in the direction of pharmaceutical drugs. That was the efficiency in philanthropy. The doctors from that point forward in history would be taught pharmaceutical drugs. All of the great teaching institutions in America were captured by the pharmaceutical interests in this fashion. And it's amazing how little money it really took to do it. 
The oligarchy birthed entire medical industries from their own research centers and then sold their own products from their own petrochemical companies as the cure. It was Frank Howard, a Standard Oil of New Jersey executive, who would go on to persuade Alfred Sloan and Charles Kettering to donate their fortunes to the cancer center that would then bear their name. As director of research at Sloan Kettering, Howard appointed Cornelius Rhodes, a Rockefeller Institute pathologist, to develop his wartime research on mustard gas for the U.S. Army into a new cancer therapy. Under Rhodes's leadership, nearly the entire program and staff of the Chemical War Service was reformed into the Sloan Kettering Drug Development Program, where they worked on converting mustard gas into chemotherapy. And once again, the Rockefeller's own snake oil was being sold as a cancer cure-all. The oligarch's interest in the burgeoning pharmaceutical industry converged in companies like IG Farben, a drug and chemical cartel formed in Germany in the early 20th century. Royal Dutch's own Prince Bernhard served on an IG Farben subsidiary's board in the 1930s, and the cartel's American operation, set up in cooperation with Standard Oil, included on its board Standard Oil President Walter Teagle, as well as Paul Warburg of Kuhn Loban Company, itself headed by Jacob Schiff of the Rothschild Broker family. At its height, IG Farben was the largest chemical company in the world, and the fourth largest industrial concern in the world, right behind Standard Oil of New Jersey. The company was broken up after World War II, but like Standard Oil, its various pieces remained intact, and today BASF, one of its chemical offshoots, remains the largest chemical company in the world, while Bayer and Sanofi, two of its pharmaceutical offshoots, are among the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. Not content merely to monopolize the fields of education and medicine, the same oligarchical interests banded together to take control of America's finances. In 1910, John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s own father-in-law, Senator Nelson Aldrich, Frank Vanderlip of the National Citibank, and Paul Warburg, as well as various agents of J.P. Morgan, met in complete secrecy on Jekyll Island to hammer out the details of what would go on to become the Federal Reserve, America's central bank. The Fed, established in 1913, would be run by hand-picked appointees of the oligarchy and their banking associates, including, perhaps inevitably, Standard Oil President and American IG Director Walter Teagle. The Rockefeller family would go on to formally enter the banking field in the 1950s when James Stillman Rockefeller, the grandson of John D.'s brother, was appointed Director of National Citibank. Meanwhile, John D.'s own grandson, David Rockefeller, would go on to take over Chase Manhattan Bank, the longtime banking partner of the Standard Oil Empire. In this move, the Rockefeller story perfectly mirrored that of their fellow oligarchs, the Rothschilds. Whereas the Rothschilds had supplemented their banking fortune with their oil interests, the Rockefellers supplemented their oil fortune with banking interests. Springboarding from success to success as they consolidated monopolies across every field of human activity, the oligarchs' ambitions became even larger. This time, their goal was to consolidate control over the very food supply of the world itself, and once again, they would use philanthropy as the cover for their business takeover. The Green Revolution began in 1943 when plant geneticist Norman Borlaug and a team of researchers arrived on Mexican soil. His goal was to improve agricultural techniques and biotechnological methodologies, which in turn would help alleviate starvation and improve the living quality of developing nations. Creating new genetically modified strains of wheat, rice, maize, and other crops, Borlaug planned to win the battle against world hunger. 
The hope was that these new crops and farming techniques would rescue third world countries from the brink of starvation. That's exactly what happened. The agricultural innovations brought to the poverty-stricken countries gave the farmers the skills and resources necessary to sustain themselves. This triggered a chain of events that would allow these once struggling nations to survive. Agricultural exports soared in quantity and diversity and allowed the countries to become self-sufficient. As the genetically modified crops thrived, farmers were able to use their increased income to purchase newer and superior farming machinery. This increase in revenue made farming easier, more reliable, and more efficient. The Green Revolution led to the modernization of agriculture and has had a profound social, economic, and political impact on the world. The Mexican government turned to the Rockefeller Foundation in their endeavor to nourish Mexico through agriculture. Norman Borlaug, needless to say, was a researcher for the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Green Revolution, for whatever increase in yields it brought about, also created markets for the oligarch's own interest in the petrochemical fertilizer industry and gave rise to the ABCD seed cartel of Archer Daniels Midland, Bunge, Cargill, and Louis Dreyfus. These companies, along with their associated interests in the food packaging and processing industry, formed the core of American agribusiness, a concept developed at Harvard Business School in the 1950s with the help of research conducted by Vasily Leontief for the Rockefeller Foundation. The American agribusiness giants shared a common goal, the transformation of third-world agriculture into a captive market for their goods. From this perspective, the project was a runaway success. By the 1970s, the Rockefeller Standard Oil Network and its cronies in the nitrogen fertilizer industry, including DuPont, Dow Chemical, and Hercules Powder, had broken into markets around the world, markets conveniently forced open for them by the U.S. government itself under President Johnson's Food for Peace program, which mandated the use of petrochemical-dependent agricultural technologies by aid recipients. Unable to afford these new technologies themselves, the impoverished third-world beneficiaries of this revolution relied on loans from the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, handled by Rockefeller's own Chase Manhattan Bank, and guaranteed by the U.S. government. The real costs of the Green Revolution, economic, agricultural, and environmental, are seldom tallied. Access to these debt-financed petrochemical-dependent technologies exacerbated the difference between the rich landowning class and the landless peasants in countries like India, where land reform and abolition of usury were dropped from the political agenda after the Green Revolution took over. Even then, the revolution's main success, its increase in agricultural yields, has been oversold. Yield growth across India actually slowed after the introduction of agribusiness. The environmental destruction is even more devastating. An overview in the December 2000 edition of Current Science notes, the Green Revolution has not only increased productivity, but it has also produced several negative ecological consequences, such as depletion of lands, decline in soil fertility, soil salinization, soil erosion, deterioration of environment, health hazards, poor sustainability of agricultural lands, and degradation of biodiversity. Indiscriminate use of pesticides, irrigation, and imbalanced fertilization has threatened sustainability. The Rockefeller Foundation even acknowledges the critiques of the Green Revolution it funded into existence, insisting that current initiatives take into account lessons learned. Even so, the Foundation continues to fund research and write reports on how to improve prospects for agribusiness investment in its target markets. As egregious as the Green Revolution was and continues to be, however, 
In many ways, it was just the prelude to an even more ambitious project, the gene revolution. Now the project is not merely to monopolize the technologies, supplies, and chemical inputs for agriculture worldwide, but to monopolize the food supply itself through the replacement of the world's natural seeds with patentable, genetically modified crops. The players involved in this gene revolution are almost identical to the players in the green revolution, with IG Farben offshoots, Bayer Crop Science and BASF Plant Science mingling with traditional oligarch associate companies like Dow AgroScience, DuPont Biotechnology, and, of course, Monsanto, all funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and fellow philanthropists at the Ford Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and like-minded organizations. The convergence of corporate, philanthropic, governmental, and intergovernmental interests in promoting GM crops around the world can be seen in the bewildering array of research institutes, industry associations, and consultative groups devoted to the case. The Rockefeller-funded International Rice Research Institute, the Rockefeller-Monsanto USAID Brainchild International Service for the Acquisition of Agrobiotech Applications, the Rockefeller-Ford World Bank-created Consultative Group of International Agricultural Research, and dozens of other bland, benign-sounding organizations research and promote GM crops in target markets around the globe, with the profits ending up in the oligarchs' coffers. A representative example of this story is the agribusiness neocolonization of Argentina, where Monsanto ran an elaborate bait-and-switch to get the country hooked on its genetically modified Roundup-ready soybeans before demanding royalties on the crops that were by then already growing. DuPont then took over, magnanimously beginning a protein-for-life program to foist their own GM soybeans on the country's poor. The same scene has played itself out in country after country, where cartel-developed GM crops are foisted on emerging economies through food aid, usually during times of famine when those countries are especially vulnerable. Only a handful of countries like Zambia or Angola have outright rejected this GMO takeover of their food supply, generously subsidized by the U.S. government to the benefit of the agribusiness cartel. From cutthroat pioneers of the early oil industry to Machiavellian social engineers and geopolitical schemers, the oligarchs have come a long way since the days of Devil Bill's snake oil cure-alls. But his use of every form of deception and trickery to swindle the public informed how John Dee and the rest of the oligarchs built up their business interests. As the 20th century drew to a close, it was obvious that for the powerful cartel that built the oil industry, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the British and Dutch royal families, it was no longer about oil, if it ever really was. The takeover of education, of medicine, of the monetary system, of the food supply itself, showed that the aim was much greater than a mere oil monopoly. It was the quest to monopolize all aspects of life, to erect the perfect system of control over every aspect of society, every sector from which any threat of competition to their power could emerge. They had been remarkably, almost unbelievably successful. From oil well to gas pump, farm to fork, hospital to pharmaceutical, drill rig to dollar bill, there was almost no aspect of society that was not under their control. But the oligarchs are not done yet. Their next project, launched in the late 20th century, is almost too ambitious to be comprehended. It is not about oil. It is not about money. 
it is about the monopolization of life itself. They have spent decades preparing the path for this takeover and marshaled their mind-boggling resources in service of the task. And the vast majority of the world's population, still playing the shell game that the oligarchs perfected and abandoned long ago, are about to fall right into their hands yet again. Ladies and gentlemen, the battle against climate change is surely the most defining and pivotal challenge of our times. Even in a world full of daunting perils and crises, it is hard to imagine anything that poses a greater challenge and opportunity for humanity. The negative impact of population growth on all of our planetary ecosystems is becoming appallingly evident. The science is unequivocally true and that, that there is a price to carbon in their future. What do you see as the biggest challenges in, in conservation? Yeah, the, the growing human population. Because if where we are, there's nothing else. We have to start spending money, um, you know, fast on the solutions that we have in hand to try and help these countries which are already seeing the effects of climate change today and seeing the effects of our, our consumption, basically. David Rothschild, thank you so much for joining us here on Bloomberg. Down in Pennsylvania, there is plenty oil, they say, petroleum, petroleum, we must all have some. The oily fever, don't you see, infects most every live Yankee from north, from east and west. They come for petroleum oil, 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 oh, petroleum.